yourself aboard the MS Fantasy and join the fun ships of Carnival Cruise Lines and the superstars of WCW on an exciting four-day WCW Cruise Cruise. The MS Fantasy sets sail May 24th of Memorial Weekend from Port Canaveral. Ports of call include Freeport and Nassau in the Bahamas. Reserve a cabin now on the most popular cruise line in the world. Call 1-800-WCW-8527 or visit our site at WCWWrestling.com and be a part of a special private reception. Space is limited. Hello and welcome to episode 91 of the New Generation Project Podcast, where we have well and truly left the heroes of Hulkamania in the dust and are knee-deep in the advent of Attitude. Today, we flip the channel one more time over to WCW to take a look at how Eric Bischoff and company resolved the whole Hollywood Hogan and Sting nonsense from Starcade at the end of 1997. It's Super Brawl 8. My name is Stuart Brooks, and I'm joined today, as ever, by the man whom a 2017 census said was the least likely to find a form of punctuation on a keyboard. It's the big fella, Paul Scrivens. Good evening. And conversely, the man voted 2017's most likely to find a form of punctuation on a keyboard, the boozerweight, Adam Wikes. Hello. How are you both doing? I'm doing pretty well, actually. I, I, I felt a bit ropey this morning, but I'm feeling way better now. Why are you feeling ropey this morning? Because I was I was having a few beers in Birmingham last night. Okay, I'm feeling slightly cantankerous. Yeah, <laughs> why is that? WCW. What is it with you and WCW, man? It makes me moody. Granted, okay. I wasn't keen about coming back to WCW because we were told it was done. We were told it was done, and I liked that finality of it. But I think I quite enjoyed this show, or you know, at least a lot more than you did. Hmm. There you go, review over, yeah. job, job done. How, how are you, Stuart? Yeah, I'm not too bad. So this may very well be the first full episode recorded in, in Castle Scrivens. Yeah. So we've done little bits of bonus content before and kind of side bits, but never a full actual episode and certainly not in, in your brand new house. Mm. Mm. We'll have to see if we get any little cameos from, from the little ones tonight. Well, we have attempted to start recording on a couple of occasions. It's, t- it's taken an hour to get up and running, really. Yeah, part of that is me just not wanting to talk about WCW. And part of it's the Frozen soundtrack. Yeah, being played at 200 decibels into Baby Scriven's yeah. ears. Yeah. Why can't he sleep? Hmm. <laughs> I wonder why. <laughs> to be honest, mate, I think it's bang out of order that we've done 90 episodes, put in a shit ton of hard work, and he just thinks he's going to rock up here and take mm. a spot on the show. Yeah. Mm. Wants, to, wants to think about his attitude, really. To be fair, I just asked him to take my place. <laughs> <laughs> Been up to anything exciting other than beers in Birmingham? Just work, really. So nothing nothing too exciting, busy time of year. No, I've not really done anything of note, I think, since we last recorded. I used to pull my fun quota at the start of September. <laughs> Ever since then, it's just been down to the graft. Down to the graft, making up for, for that kind of allotted time of freedom. Is that, two, is that those the, two Saturdays? The, the, the one weekend a year, yeah. or two weekends two a year, two. Mrs Scrivens lets you out the house. Next September, I'm right up for it. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, actually, I, I know I've sat down and watched, well, all of King of Trios, but I think you've sat down and watched a bit of it. I've, I've watched selected matches, so I kind of downloaded a couple of things. So the ones that I really wanted to see were Quack Against Johnny Kidd, 
the main event from night two, which was Strong Style against Throwbacks, and then the main event from night three, so the final, which was Strong Style against the Sendai Girls. And I've got to say, I've watched them all more than once and, and greatly enjoyed it. It's been nice to listen to two of those matches with commentary and just remember those moments and have kind of that extra layer kind of elevate it even more so. Yeah, been good. Absolutely agreed. It's it's been fun to go back and watch and kind of relive that weekend. And yeah, all shows are up for download now on ShikaraPro.com. You can pre-order the Blu-rays and the DVDs, and I imagine it will be have, on Shikara Topa imminently. I, I'm going to say, have you? Have I? Do, order the Blu-ray. Not as of yet, but I will. Because yeah, I think I might get the Blu-ray. I'm a big fan of physical media, as as anyone who listens regularly will know. So yeah, I quite like having things on my shelf. Have we ever put up a picture of your collection? I think we did put not a full collection picture up but there was something went up once it's a scary amount of optical media mm. see i have a flagrant disregard for physical media but really? um it's something that i really do quite want to own because of just like the memories of that weekend are you know something quite special yeah absolutely speaking of physical well i guess media i got my mini snares through yesterday which oh, is quite yeah. exciting yeah yeah <laughs> well, i was less excited what, about it what's your what's your pick of the games that's pre-installed on it Donkey Kong Country, that was the first game I got with my original SNES when I must have been like 12, 13 years old. So getting to go back and play that again has been pretty awesome. How small is it? I'd say roughly about like half the size maybe of the original one. That's not really helping me. I've never had an original one. (laughs) It's about twice the size of this Zoom H6. Yeah, that that would be a good comparison. Yeah. Yeah, okay. But it's filled with great stuff like Super Mario World, Super Mario Kart, Mega Man, Earthbound, Metroid. So... Can you basically play all your old games? So do you have to have the old games or they release like a bucket load or is it digital or... It's just installed on the system, okay, like clever. pre-installed all on there. I gather you can chip it and get more stuff on there, but yeah. There's no official option for releasing extra content on it? Not that I know of. They didn't do it with the mini NES, which I picked up a few months ago, but I'm a big Nintendo fanboy, so yeah, pleased with that. Yeah, I noticed mm. that. It's because you've got an original SNES as well. Yes, the living room now does have a regular size SNES and a mini SNES next to it. Well, well, we need the regular SNES for Super International Cricket because that's not on the mini SNES. Mm. Yeah, and you need to get that, that Japanese wrestling game with Arjun Kong working as well. Yeah, that I've never quite managed to get working. I did see somewhere like an, an advertisement for a, it's basically a Nintendo player. Right. So it will take, I think, any cartridge-based Nintendo thing. So it will play everything from the NES, game the SNES... The, all the Game Boys, the Famicom, so everything. So maybe that might actually play that game. Maybe, maybe that it's the, the converter answer. that might be slightly wrong on it. I mean, the, the only gaming system that I really owned, I guess you could say I owned the Toshiba 64K home computer. Wow. <laughs> like a really kind of like very, very basic cassette games. But the, the only other one I had apart from that was like an original Game Boy. I remember you having an original Game and then, Boy. And then kind of up until... I, had, I think, did I have a PS1 before I had a PS2? I might have had the PS2 first. You had a PS1 at uni, didn't you? Oh, but I it did, wasn't cause, yours. Cause, no, I had it. Was my, no, it was one I bought for about two quid from a car boot oh, sale, yeah. I think. Yeah. Bargain. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't consistent in its playing, I'll be honest. Sometimes the loading screens would just be there for like an hour. <laughs> I think one, one of the issues with that original PlayStation was that things in it were quite high quality, but one of the things they skimped on in terms of like the quality of what it was was the laser reading yeah. system. Which is why you'd find lots of people with PlayStation. Do you ever remember going around to anyone's house and they had the PlayStation like balanced on some books? So they'd like tilt it in different angles because occasionally if like your laser reading system went wrong, you could fix it by just having it at a slight angle. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
instead of instead of having to get the entire laser system replaced. Of course, you did have a Wii as well. I did have a Wii, that's right. For a brief period of time. It was part of your dowry, wasn't it? (laughs) What? Oh, no. Now, I bought it for me first. Yeah, that that is the thing, isn't it? Because did you... I'm trying to think of the order of this. Did you bring one round to our house first? Yes. It was like New Year's, wasn't it? And I nearly broke the telly. Yeah, so I got it when it first came out, that Christmas 2006, and this is when I was living in Bedford and came up to stay with you guys for the new year, and yeah... You nearly put the remote through the television screen. So that, that was the wee baseball, wasn't it? Yeah. And I and I don't think I followed the instructions of putting the wrist strap on. <laughs> and also, you were, you were trying to pitch it full strength. Yeah, I didn't realise you could just flick your wrist and it would do that. Yeah. So so basically, I was really trying to lob that. So it turns out the incident we had the other week in London, there was a precedent, precedent for yeah. it. <laughs> we should have probably known when we asked him to throw something at somewhere yeah, yeah we well, should have made, made everyone sign a some sort of like waiver as they came in <laughs> if i'm injured by any sweets in this show yeah. i will not sue yeah. before we get going we just need to say a thank you as well to matt lewer who sent us a rather nice letter and some old wwf cards which actually predated any cards i had but you were familiar with them yeah i definitely had that mr perfect one what year are they from? They late eighties, early nineties. Nineteen ninety, maybe. It looks like, like nineteen ninety one. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, I've definitely had some of those. I might still have one somewhere. In, you, you remember that old Ultimate Warrior pencil tin that I've got? Yeah. I'll have a look. I might have some of them in that. But yeah, that brought back a lot of memories. I've not seen the really tiny ones though. But there's one of Virgil. Well, there was, and then Yokozuna sat on it. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, a very kind letter he sent us as well, which is, it's always nice to receive kind messages and kind tweets and and, and et cetera. But yes, it's it's rare to get a nice letter, and and that was a very Mm. nice letter. Yeah, and if you want to send us a letter, just New Gen Podcast Leicester. (laughs) It'll find its way. It'll find its way. In honour of Marty Jannetty coming out and publicly stating... No, no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) Paul actually turned his head to the side then. Inspired by the fact that we once again get to see Disco Inferno, a wrestler named after a song, this week's challenge to you, the audience, was to take a song and make it about a wrestler or wrestling. This time we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to read out the amended titles, and one of you needs to tell me the original song title and the artist. I think Adam's got an advantage. Well, I've tried to pick from the selections offered songs that I feel you might know. Yes, mm. not necessarily an advantage. My memory's not great. So, as long as they're all Iron Maiden songs or one of the 90 songs off my family playlist, <laughs> which you've all heard about from the previous audience challenges. The following, then, are our favourite suggestions. So, this one comes courtesy of Mike Ball. Buried Alive. Pearl Jam? Correct. Alive by Pearl Jam. Yeah. Oh, I see. Very nice. Yeah. You see where we're going with this? Yeah, okay. right, yeah. You get how it's like working. That. That, that was just a practice one, right? Okay, sure. <laughs> it took one suggestion for this to become competitive. Yeah. What's the point? <laughs> <laughs> Jerry Donaldson. Papa Shango Don't Preach. Papa Don't Preach. By? Madonna. Yeah, there you go. Oh, there you go. Yeah. He loves Madonna. I don't know how he didn't get that. Again. Did, did, did actually, did, did Kelly Osbourne not cover that? Kelly Osborne. I think when they were doing the Osbournes. My God, that's a long time ago. Yeah, I think she did. David Cardiff, Sergeant Slaughter's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Oh, the Beatles. Beatles. Sergeant Pepper's Lonely yeah, Hearts yeah. Club Band. Tim Emmel, Stairway to Heavenly Bodies. Yeah, Stairway to Heaven, Led Zeppelin. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Paul sat down for this show a little bit depressed, and I can see a smile working away. Well, if he starts beating me, I'm going to just yeah. throw the mic stuns everywhere. <laughs> Jacob Cristobal, Ice Ice Train Baby. 
Ice Ice Baby by Vanilla Ice. (laughs) (laughs) Brett Lass. Knowing me, no selling you. Know me, knowing you by Alan Partridge. Or Or Abba. Abba. (laughs) By Alan Partridge. Are you two keeping score on this one, by the way? I'm winning. (laughs) Liam Bullock. In the aeroplane, over the Cena. In the aeroplane over the sea by that band that you really like, Neutral Milk Hotel. <laughs> but by the way, whoever sent that tweet the other week, so you know that people got that email from John Cena, and yeah. somebody said, you can't see see me. Yeah, that, that, that is the best yeah. tweet I have ever seen. Genuinely. Yes, that, that is one of my favourite things. Harry Green, who we also need to thank, actually. Yeah, we do need to thank. For the beers he gave us at the London mm. Podcast Festival. Talking to Adam, generally with beers, he will be able to tell me if it's my kind of tipple or not. And Adam said it probably wouldn't be my kind of thing, but you enjoyed it, right? I did, yeah. It was kind of a more Englishy bitter. I, I, I had one last week. It was good. Oh, yeah? Yeah. yeah. So we, there's just one bottle of it left in the fridge for Stuart. Okay. Which he... Down it. Down it. It's not here. Yeah, no, but like... It's in pressure, right? our fridge, not in your house. Anyway, Harry Green. Okay. Hey, Jude. E. Bagwell. Hey, hey Jude, Jude, by the by Beatles. Beatles. I think Adam was slightly quicker on that one, Paul. He wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> With a bit of luck, somebody will be recording this and we can listen to it back. <laughs> Tom Mimner, shock master of puppets. Master of puppets by Metallica. <laughs> David Nichols, the final countout. The final countdown by Europe. It's not too bad, because these are basically the actual song titles, but with one word changed, I can do that. Well, well this was the game, yeah. I wanted have, to do anything Have you been cryptic. drinking, Adam, because your reactions seemed old? No, I think it can get a bit cluttered if we both jump in, and as you seem to be having such a raucously good time, I'm just kind of letting you go. <laughs> no, don't, don't let me win. Don't, don't tell me that. I'm sorry. No, just do it. Let's, I don't care if it sounds a mess. <laughs> I know you don't. That's not the point. The point is there's a winner. <laughs> and a loser. And a loser. Adam Jakua, everybody wants to be the master and the ruler of the world. Oh, everybody wants to rule, rule the, world the world by, um, by that, for Fears. that 80s band. <laughs> I think that one's with Adam, yeah. I actually do have that on my family playlist. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah. It's a good song. It's a good song. John Villarreal, It's Raining Men. It's, it's Raining, raining men, men by the Weather Girls. <laughs> but that is also... It's genius. Raining yeah. Men would be a scary prospect. <laughs> Dave Howard, I'm Like a Free Bird. Free bird. I'm like a bird. Or Nelly Bye. Furtado. Oh, Nelly Furtado. I actually quite like that song. <laughs> I hate to admit it, but I do. Ryan Palmer. Alive and super kicking. Alive, Alive and, and kicking. kicking by Simple Minds. Mm. Craig G. Smells like Teen Spirit Squad. Tell it smells like Teen Spirit Pint Nirvana. <laughs> Andy Webster. Like a Virgil. Like a Virgin by Madonna. <laughs> Is that right? Why are you laughing yes, so much? That's right. correct. Yes. You're laughing like it was wrong. It made me feel paranoid. No, it's just Black how much... Sabbath. <laughs> <laughs> it's just how much glee you're having by being right. Mm. I'm enjoying it. Jeremy House. The number of the beast from the east. The number of the beast by I made. <laughs> Richard Quarry. No, it doesn't sound the same. Richard Quarry. This charming manta. This charming man by... One the of Smiths. those people I don't like, yeah. <laughs> Joe Fuchs, whole lot of brother love. Whole lot of love by Led Zeppelin. <laughs> Mark McDonald, and I'm going to kind of sing this one a little bit. La 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 Parker, <laughs> La Bumper. 
I don't know who did Lebron. Los Lobos. Oh. Yeah. Anthony Scott Bray, Brawn to be Wild. Brawn to be Wild by Steppenwolf. Steppenwolf. We said that in, in stereo. It, it was yeah. Working, yeah. If we actually pan our voices, it will be in stereo. <laughs> We are always in slight stereo, you know. Maybe. Oh, what, yeah. 60-40? I'm 30 to the left, you're 30 to the right. So when you say 30, you do mean like 30-70, not just 30? I mean, well, we, we, we're sort of like 30% over on yeah. each side. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't want to just be not going through one channel, because I know that sometimes my headphones don't work properly and I just, just only get one ears worth of sound. I'm going to do that one time with you. Then, then, I'll just put you only coming out of the right side. And then like a portion of the audience may have just like Stuart and you. <laughs> or Stuart I'll, and me. I'll take your your signal and, and I'll blank just, I'll just, blank off the left channel and replace it with Darth Vader's wheezing. <laughs> There's someone who's deaf in the left ear who's never heard you on the show. <laughs> they just think it's two guys. That two man podcast. It's occasional why they blanked me. These occasional long pauses followed by laughter. Yeah. <laughs> Mark Holmes, McMahon in the Mirror. Man, Man in the, the Mirror, mirror by Michael Jackson. Jackson. Chris Bennett, another one bites the gold dust. Another one bites the dust by <laughs> Queen. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Tom Canning, Eye of the Rare White Bengal Tiger. Eye of the Tiger by Survivor. Survivor, yeah. <laughs> Half each for that one. <laughs> I like this one. William J. Lendhart, Punjabi Prison Sex. <laughs> uh, prison Sex by Tool. <laughs> what? That's not a song. It is. it is, yes. It was a single, I think. Yeah. Yeah, the video got banned, didn't it? Shocking. <laughs> James Couture, Mbrock, Mbop, Mbop, Hanson. Hanson. I also do quite like that song. Yeah, it is catchy. Yeah, it is. Jordan Robert Shaw Jowett, Brimful of Aska, Brimful of Asher by Corner Shop. <laughs> Colin Middleton, Sweet Like Sexual Chocolate, Sweet Like Chocolate by somebody that wasn't that wasn't oh, a good no, song. Hang on. Do you know the answer to this one? I'll, I'll have heard it, but like I don't like the song, so why would I want to know? Shanks and Bigfoot. Shanks and Bigfoot. Yeah. Well done. You should have a point taken off for knowing that. <laughs> <laughs> Stephen Milkowski. Girls just want to have Funaki. Girls just want to have fun by Cindy Lauper. <laughs> also a very good song. Big fan of Cindy Lauper, mate. Yeah. yeah. Chris Bennett. Smack my bitch off. <laughs> <laughs> it's prodigy, that prodigy, yeah. Smack me bitch up. Yeah. Sorry, who was it by? The the <laughs> Takamichinuko. <laughs> and finally, David Gray, National Front Disco Inferno. <laughs> what? The National Front Disco by Morrissey. Correct. Yes. You were slightly a handicap there, Paul. I realise you wouldn't know it. It's a Morrissey song. Yeah. Well, there you go. There's a that whole was, bunch of suggestions. That was fantastic. It was good fun. Like, yeah. real, Punjabi prison sex might be my favourite. <laughs> did Did you really try, Adam? Yes, Paul, I really tried. Oh, thank You're God. the better man. I think, yeah, Punjabi prison sex and it's raining meng. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody needs to make that music video. Mmm, mm, Brock. It's <laughs> also quite good. Also, I kind of want to hear Sid sing Tears for Fears. <laughs> that might be quite good. I'd have to double-check this, but I think this might have been the audience suggestion with the most suggestions ever. Oh, it had, like, 370-something. Yeah. Wow, you banned so. me from looking at them. I did, because I did Which didn't... made me really curious. I'm quite proud of myself that I didn't look at them. <laughs> well, I wanted to be able to do this without you having scouted all the answers. So, there you go. Yeah, but there's so many to remember, it would have been harder to do. <laughs> I'd have been trying to learn all the songs that I didn't know. 
Well, I didn't count the scores, but you definitely won, so you're happier now. I'm way happier. Excellent. Can I look through my phone and see if I can think of any? No. Just, just no. a quick... WrestleCrate is the original wrestling-themed monthly subscription service. They send to you the best hand-picked wrestling goodies to your door each month in three simple steps. Step 1. Select your monthly plan. Step 2. WrestleCrate put your box together. Step 3. Wait for your parcel to arrive. WrestleCrate features merchandise from some of the biggest promotions in wrestling. WWE, Progress, Fight Club Pro, Ring of Honor, Chikara, Beyond Wrestling and more. And now... If you enter the code NEWGENPODCAST at the checkout, you can receive a special bonus autograph or DVD in your first crate. Visit WrestleCrate.co.uk to sign up today and take advantage of this exclusive offer with WrestleCrate, the world's first wrestling subscription box. It's Sunday, the 22nd of February, 1998, and we are live from the Cow Palace in San Francisco in front of a sold-out crowd of 12,620 fans, including 666 comps, for a live gate of $310,974. Did you say the Cow Palace? The Cow Palace. Cow. 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 C-A-L. Cow. C-O-W. You were saying cow? Yes. It's a palace of cows. Apparently so. Was it perhaps like an old auction site or something? Maybe. Yeah. Wrestling by night, selling cows by day. Those in attendance spent $127,312 on merchandise. That's a lot of NWO t-shirts. The show drew a 1.10 buy rate, around 325,000 buys, for a company gross of, are you ready? $4.11 million. The fuck, really? This show does not deserve that. those figures. <laughs> Is that more than the last WCW one that we watched? No, I think the Hogan-Sting original match drew bigger. But, but there's yeah. still a lot of interest in the rematch. Or so, there's still a lot of interest. One. Or maybe it's Disco Inferno. To give you an idea of how hot WCW is in early 1998, that's a year-on-year increase of 46.7% in terms of buy rate and 84.9% in overall event revenue versus Super Brawl 7 in 1997. Holy shit. The show also generated more than double the buy rate and overall revenue against the WWF's February 1998 effort, No Way Out In Your House. It's easy to understand now how WCW went on to crush WWF and is now the premier brand. <laughs> it, it sounds not dissimilar to my car insurance premium, which which this year <laughs> my car insurance provider, my ex car insurance provider, tried to put it by twenty five percent, and I managed to get it for less than seventy percent of last year's premium. Who was it? Who was trying to sell you the inflated? Oh, I'm not going. I'm not going to name names. I'm no longer with them. In a dark match before the show began, the Ultimo Dragon defeated Shiryu of the Michinoku Pro promotion. Hmm. And that was quite good. Well, yeah, it's a real shame we don't get to see that. You could have swapped that for some of the matches tonight. Also scheduled at one point for this card was a bout between Larry Zabisco and Louis Spicoli in a continuation of the long-running feud between Zabisco and Scott Hall. Hall had beaten Zabisco in a bout at Sold Out, following the heel turn of Dusty Rhodes, who joined the NWO, which thankfully has removed him from all forms of commentary. In the following weeks, Louis Spicoli became Hall's lackey and began getting involved in Hall's exchanges with the living legend, culminating in an angle on the February 9th Nitro, where Spicoli took Zabisco's place on commentary, now claiming he was Larry's friend and had been asked to do it. 
His commentary performance here and on the February 12th Thunder earned Spicoli rave reviews. He was sharp, witty and added to the show, bar an erroneous comment about the Oklahoma City bomber. Sadly, on the morning of February 15th, following an evening spent in watching wrestling with friends, Spicoli was found dead in his bed by his friend John Hanna, having choked on his vomit in his sleep, following a combination of 26 somas, a muscle relaxant that many wrestlers use to help them sleep, and wine. The following day's Nitro on February 16th would open with a dedication to Spicoli, though nobody on the rest of the show would even mention him, with one exception. Early in the programme, Tony Schiavone asked Larry Zabisco for his thoughts, with Zabisco somewhat callously in character, saying that for the sake of Spicoli's family and friends, he'd keep his thoughts to himself. Spicoli was buried on February 20th, with the only wrestlers in attendance being Sabu and Rob Van Dam, who were given the night off by ECW owner Paul Heyman to act as pallbearers. Despite the fact he had worked there only a little over two years ago, Spicoli's death would not be acknowledged by the WWF on television, though they would mention it on their hotline and website, whilst ECW, where Spicoli also worked, held a 10-bell salute at the beginning of their Cyberslam 98 show on February 21st. Um, mm, sad news. I yeah. liked Louis. And it's well, a real shame that you know he was just starting to get involved in something of a, of a decent note and was doing well and you know i saw part of that commentary that he did on on nitro was it that I yeah saw? and yeah it was really good and it really added to the commentary team and so just when he's reaching this high point you get this tragedy happen there was a time when darkness fell on wcw when one man was abandoned banished and another came to rule then good and evil clashed the darkness was lifted, and WCW became one once again. Now, the battle continues. Out of an army of shadows, the purveyor of good enters the ring once again. To vindicate a wrong that must be right. A man with hatred in his heart seeks to destroy this vindicator from the sky. Can he do so without ruining all that surrounds him? We open with a video package that aims for the same kind of mystical vibe that the Starcade opening promo had, but kind of falls short. Well, I think simply put, the visuals were really good here, but the audio was just muffled and I couldn't tell what they were saying. I don't think the visuals were that good. I thought they were pretty, pretty I, smart. I think they've, they've got good stuff to work with, but it looks to me like they've made it on a Windows Movie Maker. Oh, because I, it's just it's just faded shots. Black and white, one, isn't it? One after the other yeah. in black and white. But it's, I thought stylistically it works. It's not good. The voiceover is not good at all. And it's got this weird kind of modulation on the voice. Yeah. So it is quite hard to, to tell what's being said. If I have to try too hard to understand, I, I don't bother. <laughs> so... <laughs> We've mentioned this before, haven't we? But whoever's running the visual packages for the WWF is doing a far, far superior job than WCW is. They're winning. For me, it doesn't necessarily explain what the bloody hell has been going on in the last couple of months. It also talks about WCW becoming whole again when Sting won the title, but doesn't acknowledge the fact that he was only really champion for about 24 hours. Mm. Is that not the Bangles? Whole again? Whole again. <laughs> That's Atomic Kit. Atomic Kit. They're, they're the same band, aren't they? No. Oh, they're not? No, one was a good 80s band and one wasn't. Did, did Atomic Kit not do one of their songs? They covered Eternal Flame. Okay. Oh, I might have been getting mixed up with that. Okay. 
Macho Man Randy Savage is also only briefly mentioned at the end. However, as we'll discuss later in the show, he's been a real integral part of television over the last couple of months. So you wouldn't really know that from this video? No, I really would not have guessed it. For me, this promo should have been about how the title has been upheld since shortly after Starcade. The match tonight will determine who the champion is, but what role will Savage play in proceedings? So, yeah, not a fan of this, really. No. Tony Schiavone welcomes us to Super Brawl 8 as Pyro goes off and the crowd goes wild. Tony hypes the main event and goes into a bit more exposition about the title situation. This is what the opening video package should have told us? It, it should have, because we get about three or four minutes of them just talking. That's kind of standard for most WCW pay-per-views, though. So, Should you have it, though? Mm, I don't mind it. It introduces us to our announced team and we, we get a bit of banter and a bit of dialogue. But, yeah, I would have preferred this exposition is in the video package. It's, it lacks a bit of snap for me. Tony is joined by Iron Mike Tanay and Bobby the Brain Heenan. As Tony explores the role Randy Savage will play in the main event, the crowd behind the announced team chant Weasel. Tanay and Heenan offer their thoughts on the WCW versus NWO feud, and Tony tells us that tonight we'll see the biggest rematch our sport has ever seen. Is it the biggest rematch the sport has ever seen? T- Tony is somewhat fond of claiming that whatever matches the main event is the biggest match well, our sport has ever seen. In terms of numbers and buy rates, he, he's not wrong, is he? Well, yeah, I guess so. It's making big money. But the thing we kind of need to talk about to kick off, really, is something that happened since we last recorded, the death of Bobby the Brain Heenan. Mm. Mm. So although when we recorded last, it hadn't happened by the time I came to edit the episode, it had. And even though I'd done the final export, I kind of went back in and, and did a little bit of a tribute at the start yeah, because we we sat down and watched the 92 Royal Rumble and his commentary performance there is just tremendous. Yeah, it's standout brilliant. The fact that he's so incensed that Ric Flair's out at like number three and maintains it for the entire duration is fantastic. Yeah, he really sort of lifts that Flair performance and lifts the entire bout and... Yeah, I know you weren't initially a fan when we first watched. No, I wasn't. I got a bit of heat for that. But actually, the more that we watched, the more I kind of... I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was... I was not used to that style of commentary, you know. All the stuff that I'd watched really would have been JR and King. And I guess it was perhaps a marked change, and maybe it was just the change that it just didn't seem like wrestling commentary should be to me. But when we kind of went back into WCW and watched some of that, I actually kind of got a bit more of an, uh, an appreciation. But clearly, I mean, one of the things that's quite interesting that did make me sit up and take notice when you kind of you look at all the tributes that come in on Twitter and that many people can't be wrong because people were saying such strong statements about the kind of the level of genius he had and, and things that kind of makes me kind of think, you know, I probably should go back and go back to some of his early work, maybe from WWF and, and judge him by that at some point. Yeah, I mean, you can switch on, if you get the chance on the network, any episode of Primetime Wrestling, really, and generally you'll see like a, at least two or three good exchanges, funny exchanges between him and Gorilla. I mean, another angle that we looked at not too long ago that I'm really a big fan of is the Mr. Perfect turn. Yeah, that was yeah. good, yeah, that was really Like, good. his performance there is absolutely tremendous as well, and... You know, the, the guy battled like cancer for the better part of like 20 years, really. And wow. I, I think it's one of, how do you say it? Like the universe's great cruelties of that a man that was so talented with kind of his voice mm. and his wit and his humour, you know, he had to kind of suffer that tail end of his life without yeah. it. Mm. Yeah, it, it's a real shame because he was he was one of those people that had this genuine, almost stand-up comic 
style, wit, and yeah. quickness of thought. You can kind of tell when he commentates on things, and the speed of which he can pick jokes out is is quite phenomenal. And there's there's not really many people that can do that, and that have ever been able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you've ever seen it. I think Adam, you might have his Hall of Fame acceptance speech. Yeah, I've seen like little clips of that. Um, it's, it's really kind of heartbreaking at the end race. It's where he wishes that Gorilla could be there to see him going. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's fast and it's it's witty and it's funny and it's moving and it's yeah it's quite fantastic. And this was the first time he'd kind of been in in a very public sort of WWF type forum for about three years. He's saying and that he comes out and just delivers this speech that has everyone from the people in the crowd to the, his fellow inductees to the inductors kind of sat behind him all in absolute stitches. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's on the network actually that ceremony, but if you do want to watch it, I've got it on DVD, Paul, because it is mm-hmm. absolutely hilarious and and he's decent tonight. You know, criticism of him is that he loses interest in the tail end of WCW, but probably with good reason because he doesn't yeah. know what the bloody hell is going on because no one knows what the bloody hell is going on. But if you go watch any sort of 80s managerial Heenan or early 90s commentary Heenan, it, it's great. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Conversely, Tony is another guy actually that I think I'm more fond of than the general consensus is that people are fond of him. See, I was, I was actually going to say, I think tonight is one of his better performances. Okay. To, to, to be honest, I I usually find him objectionable is a, is a stronger word than I I mean here, but like I don't generally enjoy his commentary. Mm. But tonight, actually, you know, I, I thought I thought he put in a better performance than I'm used to hearing from him. I well, think he generally he acts as a decent foundation for the commentary. You know, and he kind he kind of like leads it through, and he has his two colours really to to come in or he, or he has like an extra expert to offer different insight but i think he's pretty good i mean for, for me just as a solid down the middle sort of like almost host of it i think he's he's better than vince was yeah oh yeah certainly but actually over the last week or so i've been listening to a bit of his podcast oh okay tony Chiron does one yeah so he's not doing vince one. man not vince <laughs> i'd love podcast. to hear vince's podcast <laughs> yeah that'd be great <laughs> But no, Tony's got one now with the same guy who does Bruce Pritchard's one, which I've also listened to. And while it offers a lot of like really unique WWF insight, it can get a bit irritating or I find it a bit irritating. Whereas Tony with the same host, I find comes across a lot more likable and a lot more free in kind of the conversations he's willing to have and the information he's willing to reveal. Mm. So yeah, if if you've not listened to that, it's, it's called What Happened When. Okay. What's he doing now? I think he does some baseball commentary. There was a story about him working at Starbucks or something like that. What? Yeah, weird. But he's definitely done some baseball commentary since WCW. It'd be brilliant. Just commentate on making your coffee. <laughs> this is the greatest coffee in the history of our coffee. In the, his, in the history of coffee, this this is the best coffee. But the, the problem is that, that I had with him making coffee is he'd only ever talk about the last coffee that he'd make of the day <laughs> early on in the shift. But to be fair, that's what management was telling him. Yeah. Like... It undersells the opening coffees, yeah. but what are you going to do? <laughs> Our opening contest then is Rick Martel versus Booker T for the WCW television title. <laughs> you pleased to see him, Paul? He looks better here. He does, doesn't he? I don't know. My comment says, what does he look like? Mm. Better. You prefer the reflective bin liner plastic? Yes. Yes, oh, well. I do. Oh, okay. But no, no, because they talk about it on commentary. Like, I think he does look quite 
in good shape as well. Oh, he's in really good shape, yeah. yeah. Well, his, his ring attire, I think he should have gone for the matte finish. I think he's gone a bit too much for the gloss finish. Yeah. With his brother, Stevie Ray, taking a couple of months off to recover from an ankle injury, Booker T transitioned into singles competition in late 1997 and captured the first singles gold of his WCW career on the December 29th, 1997 episode of Nitro, when he defeated the Disco Inferno for the television title. <gasps> Rick Martel, meanwhile, made a rather surprising appearance on the January 5th Nitro, defeating Brad Armstrong after a number of years out of the spotlight, his last major appearance being at the 1995 WWF Royal Rumble. Martel only competed in a handful of matches between 95 and 1998, appearing for Otto once in Germany in mid-1995, before returning to his native Canada in late 1997, where he formed a short-lived tag team in the IWA with The Natural, aka The Jackal, a duo that was at one point rumoured to appear in the WWF. Their entire run as a tag team saw them pitted against either Christian Cage and Rhino, or Cage and Adam Impact, the future Edge. When Booker defended his television title against Saturn on the January 12th Nitro, Saturn would initially pick up the win with his feet on the ropes. For some reason, Rick Martel came to the ring and informed the referee of this, and because Martel is such a reliable source of information, the official restarted the bout, with Booker hitting the Harlem hangover for the win. Mm -hmm. As Booker passed Martel in the aisle, Martel informed Booker that he was now owed a favour. Martel would again make the save for Booker the following week on the January 19th Nitro, saving the television champion from a post-match assault by Raph. As repayment for his kindness, Booker agreed to put his title on the line against Martel at Sold Out. Before the bout, though, the Flocks, Kidman, would confront Rick Martel backstage on the January 22nd Thunder, irritated at Martel being a stooge and costing Saturn the match a couple of weeks prior. As Martel faced off with Kidman, Perry Saturn appeared and threw Martel through a glass door in a pretty extreme moment that the announcers ignored until Martel emerged, seemingly fine, to wrestle Saturn later in the broadcast, a contest he won with his trademark Boston, or as it is now referred to, Quebec, crab. I don't mind that. Martel would think he'd picked up the television title with the same manoeuvre it sold out on January 24th, but would fall victim to an axe kick and a Harlem hangover shortly afterwards. Post-match, Martel would tease stealing the title, but would eventually present Booker with the strap. As Booker left the ring, Saturn would appear through the crowd and attack Martel, still angry at being stooged by the former model, but returning the favour from a few weeks prior, Booker would make the save. Saturn would receive another opportunity at Booker's television title on the January 26th episode of Nitro. With Booker on the verge of victory, the flock's hammer would interfere, followed by the rest of the group to give Booker a kicking. Making the save once again would be Rick Martel, cleaning house on the entire faction until it was just himself, Saturn and Booker in the ring. As Booker and Martel advanced, Saturn bailed from the ring, once again angry that Martel had stuck his nose in Saturn's business. With Rick Martel briefly out of action due to a concussion, Saturn would get a third crack at winning the television title on the January 29th Thunder, with Booker picking up the win pinning Saturn after the latter collided with Rick Martel, who was attempting to prevent the flock from interfering. Post-match, Saturn would shove Booker into Martel with a brief argument breaking out between the pair. Booker T would be scheduled to defend his television title against Raven on the February 9th Nitro, but before the match could begin, Raven insisted Booker hand the strap over to whom he considered the rightful TV champion, Saturn. When Booker refused, the flock jumped him and were eventually joined by Saturn, who placed Booker in the rings of Saturn. 
Rick Martel would make his return to the ring on the February 16th Nitro, taking the place of Disco Inferno in a match against Saturn, despite the fact he was already scheduled for a bout against Booker T for the television title later in the broadcast. As per usual, the flock would interfere, giving Saturn a distraction and the opportunity to apply the rings of Saturn to Martel for the win. Less than 20 minutes later, Martel would capture the television title from Booker T when Booker caught his knee on the top rope trying to cut off an interfering Saturn, allowing Martel to apply the Quebec Crab for the win. Shortly after the end of the match, J.J. Dillon would make an appearance, requesting the presence of Booker T, Rick Martel and Saturn. Dillon, attempting to be fair to all parties, announced that Martel would defend the title against Booker T at Super Brawl, with the winner taking on Saturn immediately afterwards. Mean Gene Oakland queried whether this was fair on the champion, with Dylan saying it wasn't about what was fair, it was about what was right. Rather complex things been happening then. But for a low-card title, like, that's a fairly detailed feud. Yeah. Who's, who's been the standout performer throughout all of this? You say, because you've watched everything, haven't you? And I've seen bits, but you basically lived WCW for I, a few I'm, days. I'm going to say Booker T. Yeah, I, I'll agree, Booker. Like, they, they've all looked good, to be fair, and... You know, I think given a year on, they'd have probably just booked a triple threat. Mm. Right. But we're still in a place where that's not commonplace on WCW television. Mm. So this is kind of a little bit of a different thing to do. Okay, you've all been kind of embroiled in this little bit of a feud. You can defend the title. Winner takes on the other contender. Like, it's something different. I don't think we've ever seen anything like this, with the exception of maybe... WrestleMania 10. WrestleMania 10, exactly. But that was kind of spaced out, whereas this is immediately one after another. It mm. kind of benefits Saturn more than anyone else. Yeah. But it's an interesting little premise, and it's a low-card title given a fair amount of screen time and a fair amount of interest. Like, compare that to how the European title is treated on WWF television, mm. and it's really night and day. Yeah, so you give more validity to the title if you have more interesting things going on with it. So there's a bigger story, which makes it seem like a bigger deal, which makes the title a a better title. If you ignore a title, it becomes meaningless. Booker T enters first, a good portion of the crowd raising the roof along with him. Good crowd, do not know I would say. Really good crowd. They certainly start off hot and yeah. they end hot. I think it loses its way a bit in the middle, but... That's just Mongo, though. I, I like the set. Yeah, the, it, it makes it look really big. big. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Like I'm not that. sure it was as big as it looked, I'll be honest with you. But perspective made yeah. it look good. It's all kind mm. of red carpeted, isn't it? Yeah. At the, at the top and those very long screens. Things, yeah. And so you get some nice... The graphics. Got like wider images mm. of of the superstars come out and you see lots of things going on be, behind them. It does make it seem like a big deal. Tony and Tanay discuss the TV title situation and remind the audience that the winner of this first bout will immediately have to wrestle Saturn afterwards. Rick Martel is out next to Mild Booze, wearing a bin bag for a jacket. Hmm. Sign in the crowd, Sting is the king of the ring. Yeah, I saw that. I actually wrote it down. Doesn't make any sense. Tanay sells that Martel is in the greatest shape of his career as Martel gets in the ring and is pulling more obviously heel facials than he ever has in WCW. So when he comes back, he's definitely a baby face and he's kind of Booker's pal and he's helping him against the flock and stuff. But these last couple of weeks, they've kind of sort of angled him a bit more heel and his theme tonight, which I definitely think is different, is a lot more kind of model-esque and he's definitely more outwardly the heel in this match. I'd definitely say... More outwardly the heel, yeah. My memories of Martelli was always the heel. Because he, I remember him as the model. And he played the heel really well. I mean, he's in a babyface tag team with Tito Santana prior to being the model. So he, he's done both. 
but yeah he he would have been remembered and and certainly this crowd to me feels like a very almost pro wwf crowd like they like a lot of the wwf guys so mm. they would remember martel as being kind of that model low card mid card heel do you think that it's a typical thing for people to remember him most for being the model oh yeah it's obviously what i remember but i never really saw his babyface run with tito santana but i remember watching the model rick martel and so that's why I know him. But for people that have seen a longer view of his career, is the model the standout thing that he's remembered for? Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, there's a proliferation of title bouts tonight. What do you make to that booking? Because it feels a little bit like I'm the manager on SmackDown versus Raw, or, or SmackDown <laughs> Here Comes the Pain, or something. That that's kind of what that feels like. Well, you've just got all the major titles defended. It's you know, I've I've got no issue with that. I mean, but is that something they're starting to do more often? Because there's nothing wrong with doing that. It's like, because, you know, it's Knight of Champions, I guess, is something that WWE do later on. Yeah, and, and, and certainly if you compare and contrast it with the WWF's February pay-per-view where, okay, Shawn Michaels is injured, but the only titles defended are the light heavyweight title and the NWA North American heavyweight title. Mm. You know, we certainly get a better calibre of title matches on this show. Yeah. Martel wants a handshake, which the crowd don't want Booker T to take. He doesn't, and Martel goes to attack Booker from behind, but Booker counters with an Irish whip and a huge back body drop, which gets a good pop. As does Booker, clotheslining Martel to the outside. Martel heads back inside and takes the advantage with forearms as we see the flock arrive at ringside. Yeah, the crowd get pretty distracted by that and just stop watching the match completely. Yeah, I think there there is... There's... There is good engagement in this match, but there is a huge amount of interest in what the flock is doing. doing yeah. Lodi's over. Well, that's because he's got loads of awesome signs. Yes. Booker fights back with a clothesline and a back elbow, as Mike Tenay tells us that they could, quote, cut the tradition with a knife. What, what? does that mean? He's <laughs> <laughs> oh, gone from zero to hero, not to 60 there. Booker gets the two count off the back elbow and goes to an armbar on Martel. Did you see what Lodi had written on his back? I knew he had something with some, but I didn't read it. No, what was it? It says, Mars needs women. What? I guess women women are from Venus, men are from Mars. Is that kind of like some kind of reference? I've no idea. Yeah, so if men are from Mars, they need some women. Yeah, that would make sense. You could have had Venus needs men. <laughs> Martel backs Booker into the corner to break out the armbar and hits kicks to the gut of Booker. Booker fights back with a big spin kick, a snapmare, and a knee drop for a two count before going back to the armbar. Booker's kicks are very, very good. Yeah. Because, like, Booker T, were you a fan of his wrestling? I wouldn't say I was a big fan, but, like, I didn't dislike him as a wrestler. I hate him as a commentator. See, he's uh, bad at commentary. See, I've not really heard a great deal of his commentary, but I, I quite you. liked his character work, but was never a massive fan of his in-ring work. Per se, like I didn't hate it. Like I couldn't switch off. I think it's he came on, but that I'd have to go back and rewatch. I don't remember from all this stuff because I'm much more familiar with when he went to WWE. I don't remember being offended by anything that he did. But this is the thing: Do you remember anything he did? Bookends? No, no. In terms of matches, do you remember? Like, do you think? Oh, you know what? That Booker T match against whoever? No, I'm, or Stella. I, re- or... I remember him more for his altercations with The Rock. Over the mics. Mm. Or his tag team with Goldust. Or King Booker. King, King, Booker. King Booker and the Boogeyman. Uh, that this... is a classic feud, yeah, that was yeah. great. Has this match then slightly altered your perception of his in-ring work? I think his kicks look absolutely brilliant. Like, like 
some of the best I've seen in terms of the crispness of the execution. But that said, I thought the rest of his kind of like wrestling, almost like vocabulary, sorry, that feels like the wrong word, but it's what I'm going to use, doesn't seem as proficient. Yeah. Hmm. So yeah, kick, the kick stuff is, is stellar, but not enamoured by much else. Spinneroonies. Spinneroonie, that was excellent. Yeah, 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 it goes top. without saying, yeah. Martel sucks chance from the crowd as the former model powers back to his feet and out of the armbar, but quickly walks into another big kick from Booker that gets a pop and a two count before Booker once again works the arm. Martel tries to ram Booker into the corner, but Booker reverses, sends Martel into the corner, whips him across the ring, and beals him across the ring. Martel attempts to rest in the corner, and when Booker charges him, Martel lifts Booker over him and sends him over the top rope to the outside. DQ? That's why they say on commentary that he's lucky not to be disqualified. Because it happens a few times tonight. Like It's like, you have the rule or you don't. <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? Because yeah. they're kind of like, oh, the referee's decided to let that one go. It's like, well, why would you? If it's not a no-DQ match. Shoddy yeah. refereeing. I don't did think that some people who are watching might be a bit confused as to why he hasn't yeah. been DQ'd. Is that, would that really happen? No, I don't think anyone's paying attention to that rule anymore. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that I think they just need to almost like clarify because it's, I've only just seen this show really, but if it's happening with this regularity that they're having to try and explain it away two or three times a pay-per-view, yeah. then they just need to get rid of the rule. Does it? Booker attempts to get back into the ring, but Martel knocks him off the apron, throat first onto the guardrail to heat from the crowd. Martel joins Booker on the outside and rams him face first into the ring apron. Martel gets back into the ring and poses to heat before Booker joins him and Martel targets Booker's lower back. Booker avoids a Martel charge in the corner and hits a nice side slam for a pop before missing an elbow drop. No worries though, as Booker spinneroonies up to a pop so and good. knocks Martel down with a big fist. How much of Booker T's momentum and popularity is down to his spinneroonie? I think a good portion. I think quite a bit. Percentage? The thing is, it looked really smooth as well. Like, he he misses the elbow drop and then almost sort of covers for it in a way yeah. by doing the spinneroonie and getting back up. Yeah, so it has a purpose. And obviously morphs down the line, doesn't he, where he's, he suddenly gains mass fascination with his hand <laughs> and then does a little dance move. A fatigued Booker attempts to whip Martel across the ring, but Martel reverses. Booker gets a boot up on a charge, but runs into a power slam from Martel on his way out of the corner, which gets Martel a two. A frustrated Martel pleads with the referee and applies a chin lock, which generates Martel sucks chance. Booker powers up and gets out of the hold with elbows, but runs into a spine buster from Martel, which gets a reaction. Nice. Martel looks to apply the Quebec crab, which gets big boos until Booker reaches the ropes, which gets a big pop. Martel attempts to whip Booker into the corner, but Booker reverses. Martel leaps to the bottom rope, though, and comes out of the corner with a crossbody, but Booker reverses the move into a pinning attempt of his own for a two. That was also good. Good sequence, really. Booker gets a roll-up for another two, before Martel hits a clothesline for a two. Shivani makes the point that this match is going longer than either man would have wanted, given that they will have to wrestle a second match immediately afterwards. Yep. Booker ducks a couple of Martel clothesline attempts and hits a big forearm for a big pop. Booker hits a huge scissor kick for another pop, followed by a spine buster. It was, it was a nice... Would you call that a high-angle spine buster? Yep. It's good. Booker poses to the crowd for a pop before missing a crossbody from the top rope. Martel appears to be limping when he gets to his feet and lifts himself onto the second rope. 
he leaps off straight into a big sidekick from Booker T, yeah. who covers for the three count at 10.23. It does look like he might have legitimately just like kicked his face off. <laughs> <laughs> I quite like this. It was pretty good. I think maybe it did go a bit long. I mean, it felt like it should be a bit quicker for the reason that there's got to be another match immediately after it. But Booker T looked pretty good. Rick Martel did a decent effort as well. I think this is a fairly solid opener. I, I kind of thought it was it was okay. I liked the kicks. I liked the spinneroonie. The spine buster was good. But there was there was bits like I didn't feel that Martel's because he did like a power slam and spine buster. I thought you know they didn't look quite crisp enough. So it was, like it, they weren't like botches or anything, but like not quite up to the standard that I was looking for but it was decent well I mean he's not been wrestling consistently for quite a while has he so he's, no. he's not going to be in crisp in his performance because maybe he hasn't had enough practice in it plus he's, plus he's he's considerably older than Booker T yeah he's in his he? 40s yeah he's been around for a long time so I think he actually you know considering that does a pretty decent effort yeah I think the best way to describe this match is solid it wasn't a show stealer. It wasn't spectacular, but I thought it was a genuinely decent opener. The crowd were definitely into it, which helped as well. And they were happy to accept Martel as a heel, and they were behind Booker as a babyface. So, so it's working. Yeah, mm. Booker's big side kicks looked impressive due to his height. Yeah. I think that yeah. that's what really helps them. And ergo, the height he gets on the kicks makes them look even more impressive. Martel working the back was logical stuff as well, considering his finisher. But ultimately, Booker always had the impressive kicks to go back to, helping him get the win. Yeah, yeah, a yeah, good opener. Enough. Up next is Booker T versus Saturn for the WCW television title. With the crowd still celebrating Booker's win, Saturn hits the ring and throws Martel to the outside. Saturn instantly applies the rings of Saturn, but Booker makes the ropes. Saturn rolls Booker up for a two-count before applying a backslide for another two-count and a cradle where Booker reaches the ropes. The announcers praise Saturn's strategy, saying given that how tired Booker must be, attempting to win the match early is a great idea. Yeah, yeah, it's a bit like the money in the bank type scenario, isn't it? Is you jump in when someone's just had a match and you can then quite easily defeat them. Yeah. But it doesn't quite run according to plan. It is odd. I still find it really weird to see Perry Saturn with hair. Yeah, that is weird. Oh, it's a very different look. And yeah. he's got tattoos, but he's not covered in tattoos. He also doesn't look as big as I think he By does the time he gets to the WWF, he's almost grotesquely muscled. I always remember thinking Perry Saturn sort of has inflated himself quite a bit. He's basically orange and is, is just covered, mm. covered in tattoos. I, I, th- I think he looks good here. Yeah. Apart yeah. from the hair. Apart from the hair, just looks a bit strange. Like, but that's because you're just seeing him with no hair, mate. Well, maybe he just maybe never looked like he suited hair. I don't know. Saturn chokes Booker with his shirt, but tosses it out of the ring at the four count. As Booker crawls to the ropes, Saturn kicks him in the back. Saturn whips Booker across the ring, but misses a charge when Booker lifts himself up and rolls Saturn up for a two count. Saturn stomps away at Booker, kicking him to the outside. Saturn follows and whips Booker into the guardrail and drops him throat first over another, which gets reactions from the crowd. Small ECW chance for Saturn as he wraps Booker's arm around the ring post. After breaking the count, Saturn once again attempts to whip Booker into the guardrail, but Booker reverses it and Saturn crashes into the railing. Saturn, whom Tanay refers to as the gargoyle, is the first back up and attacks Booker before rolling him back into the ring. 
there, there is a lot of guardrail action tonight. Yeah, I've got that noted. Yeah, yeah they have a real rough night. We, we've, their... we've had three spots already, and we're kind of like about 12 minutes into the wrestling. Maybe it's their theme. Yeah. You know, like occasionally it'll be kicks to the balls and things like Sidewalk that. Sidewalk slams. slams. Yeah, yeah. The, the theme is guardrail spots. Saturn mocks Booker's taunt for mild booze as the announcers discuss that Booker seems unable to get to his feet. Saturn hits chops and knees in the corner before an awkward segment where neither seems sure what's going on when Saturn makes an Irish whip attempt. The crowd comes back alive when Booker counters the Saturn charge with a power slam and the referee counts both men down. Saturn once again sends Booker to the outside before slingshotting himself over the top rope with a cross body block. That was nice. That's cool. With Booker on the floor, Saturn hits something akin to a Vader bomb from the second rope to the floor for a reaction. That's mm. like a Saturn bomb. Y- yes, I guess that's what you'd call it. But really cool. Like, really interesting looking move. It seems to hurt Saturn as much as Booker, though. Oh, it's ill-advised. <laughs> but, but it is interesting. Back inside, Saturn seems to be limping before Booker makes a comeback with a flying forearm. Booker misses a kick attempt in the corner, landing upside down on the mat. Saturn covers from this for a two. Saturn sets Booker up on the top rope and hits a back suplex, though again, Saturn seems to suffer as much as Booker from it. Yeah, it's like he hurts his head when he mm. when he lands. It's just weird because he's got hair to cushion it this time. Yeah, no, yes. I thought, thought that was a nice spot. Saturn once again tries to cover Booker, but Booker is underneath the ropes, so referee Mickey J doesn't count. Saturn once again sets Booker up on the top and looks for a regular superplex, but Booker reverses and drops Saturn to the mat face first. Booker hits an amazing missile dropkick from yeah, the top that's rope. Cool. Yeah. Booker hits a big sidekick before Saturn hits a big overhead suplex, which sadly gets little reaction. Yeah, was, was there something special about that? Because I noted that as cool, yeah. specifically. I think Saturn's suplexes are all amazing. Yeah, He's a real kind of suplex machine. It gets Saturn a two, eventually. Saturn hits another overhead suplex, covering quicker this time for another two. Is it like a butterfly suplex? I think I had that one down as. Saturn hits a moonsault off the second rope to little reaction again, as I wonder if the crowd are losing interest in this one, due to the amount of times the referee is counting both men down. Mm. That seems to crop up quite a lot in this one. Maybe weird not to get a good reaction for a very nice-looking moonsault, though. Saturn backs Booker into the corner and hits chops before choking Booker with his boot. Saturn whips Booker to the corner, and Booker attempts to leap off the second rope with a backwards kick, but fluffs the jump, and Saturn bats him out of the way when he eventually makes it. Saturn gets another two from this. Bobby Heenan covers for Booker, saying that Booker missed the jump due to fatigue. Tony to Bobby. Are we going to argue all night, you and me? Heenan, not if you leave. Hmm. Saturn applies a chin lock, as Mike Tenay reveals that Rick Martel suffered a knee injury in the opening bout. Booker powers out of the chin lock and charges Saturn off the ropes, ending with a rough-looking double-down when both men collide mid-ring. Booker runs into a power slam from Saturn before avoiding a charge in the corner and hitting a spine buster. Booker hits the scissors kick as Tony attempts to hide the fact that Booker is using the exact same sequence of moves he used in the first match by saying, Booker T is using the moves that have made him a star in our sport. Booker hits a side slam and heads to the top rope for the Harlem hangover. Saturn moves, though, and hits Booker with a Northern Light suplex for a two. Mm. A German suplex gets another one. Saturn looks for a backdrop, but Booker rolls out of it, not quite landing on his feet. When Saturn turns around, he is met with a Harlem sidekick from Booker T, who covers for the three and the win at 14.23. I quite like this. I've got to be honest, I probably enjoyed it more than the, the Martel. 
opener. I, I don't know why. I think I just like Sutton. I think his his move set's really good. His suplexes look excellent. He's doing interesting things. Uh, I'd, I'd kind of say probably similar. I think I do think it was better than the Martel segment with with Booker, but it wasn't blown away again. Again, there was just nice spots without necessarily being brilliant. And I thought at times the heat started to dip. Yeah, as, as the as the match went on, which is perhaps told me what I really need to know about the match. Because it is quite long, isn't it? And credit to Booker, well, he's pulling in quite a long shift. Yeah, effectively, this. he's doing, what, 25 minutes, half an hour? Yeah. Booker is at the start, yeah. and that's quite quite a heavy load to pull, isn't it, in the first match? Yeah, that's an awfully long time for anybody to be going at all, let alone in an opener against two different people. Yeah. And maybe this is one, one, one of the reasons the, the crowd kind of dips down is that you don't normally get openers that are this long. Yeah. It kind of feels like one match. Yeah. yeah. I did question in my notes the selling, and I don't know necessarily what I meant by that because I didn't really expand upon it. But um, <laughs> but I wonder if uh, what a perhaps thought is they don't sell enough. I think they do loads at, of selling in this. Times. There's loads of double downs in this. You do get some quite big moves. So there's a lot of different suplexes. You know, we've got, you know, I've just noting down here, I mean, I've got half the Saturn match on, on the top of this page. And there's four big suplexes, I think, in that section. And I think, I don't know, I kind of just expected a little, you know, to look a little more ragged. This was decent, I thought, but nowhere near as heated as the opener, even though this one arguably had the bigger moments. If you're wondering why there were several blown or mistimed spots in this one, the answer lies in the information given by Mike Tanay mid-match. Rick Martel, who suffered a knee injury in the opener that will end his career, was due to retain the television title and uh. be the one defending against Saturn. But once the injury occurred, the finish was changed to Booker going over. Ergo, Booker and Saturn hadn't actually prepared a match with one another. And Booker then just had to repeat his his spots with it. Well, exactly. I mean, it was quite good. Because if you, you're kind of doing this off the cuff at a, at a momentary change of plan, yeah, enjoyable. Given the situation, yeah, I think they put on a commendable effort, but I don't think the crowd really knew how to respond to watching a wrestler have two matches immediately after one another, especially given that Booker, early into his singles run, doesn't have enough material to keep two bouts feeling fresh. Mm. That said, they're clearly serious about positioning him as a future singles star, so the injury to Martel probably actually helped Booker long-term, meaning he got to put forth a gutsy effort that filled the first 30 minutes of a pay-per-view win a title, retain the title, so it sort of makes him mm. look good and builds a bit of credibility yeah. for him. So what spot was it that hurt his knee? I'm not sure, but it's apparently quite early on in the first match. Okay, because I didn't really notice. Like, I saw some bits where he was hobbling, but it didn't look like he was in agony. He, he must have done a reasonably good job of covering that up then, to be fair to him. Shame, but yeah. shame for Martel. Yeah, that's him done. To, yeah, you come back and you're in good shape. It looks like you're going to have a bit of a sustained run in the promotion. And then freak injury, and you're done. I also liked the Vader bomb on the floor. I think that's quite that's cool. an incredible height to do that move from as well. Yeah, mm. I think that's why I preferred, you know, that the second match is Saturn's offense was like really, really good. Backstage, Lee Marshall and Mark Madden are on WCWWrestling.com with Chris Jericho, who discusses how he's going to take Juventud Guerrero's mask later tonight and pulls a bit of a smug face about it. I like heel Chris Jericho. Up next is La Parker versus Disco Inferno. Clash of the Titans. For no real reason, La Parker would run to the ring following a bout between Yuji Nagata and the Disco Inferno on the February 9th Nitro, whacking both men in the back with a steel chair. 
Disco would return the favour in La Parker's match with Nagata the following week on the February 16th Nitro, hitting Parker with the Chart Buster, a.k.a. the Stone Cold Stunner. Mm. It looks a lot like that, yeah. Yeah, why Disco Inferno has been given Steve Austin's finisher is anybody's guess. Logical choice. Is, is that like just to rip on it? Literally no idea. Is it Stone Cold Disco Inferno. Well, it, well, I could only assume, though, it would be a way of trying to demean WWF's new hottest guys, finish it by giving it to Mid Carter. That's all I could assume. It wouldn't take long for La Parker to return the favour, the chairman of WCW attacking Disco from behind with his trademark steel chair, preventing him from making it to the ring for a match with Saturn later in the show. Finally, Disco would conduct one of the world's worst run-ins during La Parker's match with Super Colo on the February 19th Thunder, which ended with him getting hit with a chair and Parker then dancing on it. <laughs> La Parker enters chair in hand, playing it like a guitar as he dances his way to the ring. Seems pretty happy with himself. He does seem happy with himself, but did you notice what he's especially happy with? His dancing. His face on the screen. Oh, yeah, he likes his face on the screen. Yeah, He, he likes does. seeing his face on that big screen. <laughs> Mike Tanay wonders if the reason La Parker and Disco Inferno have an issue is due to conflicting dance ideals. It's the mm. only thing that I can logically think of. Well, it's quite funny because Tony starts talking about how, like, you know, WCW and the NWO are embroiled in this, like, bitter sort of 18-month feud and it's, it's all very high stakes. But it's good that we can still have people having a bit of a fight over dancing. Well, yeah. He's got a point. Disco Inferno makes his way to the ring to mild booze as Tony Schiavone tries to put over how he has improved as a wrestler. Disco gets into the ring. So La Parker lobs a chair at his head and we get going. Mm. Well, it does hit his arm, doesn't it? Leparka hits a power slam and mocks Disco's dancing before kicking him in the stomach. Disco gets a power slam for a two count and a series of clotheslines in the corner for another two. Parker hits a big clothesline of his own, followed by a big spinning wheel kick which sends Disco to the outside. As Disco sells on the outside, Leparka does some dancing in the ring. Leparka's dancing is five stars. Leparka joins Disco on the outside and hits a big chop before sending him into the guardrail and hitting a big clothesline. In the ring, Leparka does more dancing before again attacking Disco on the floor, dropping him neck first where? Is it the guardrail again? <laughs> again, more dance-based taunting. Back in the ring, Leparka covers Disco Inferno for a two count. They do. Um, I'm not sure who delivers this line, but they do talk about this is where the big boys dance. Yes, I didn't like that. Bobby Heenan. <laughs> Leparka misses a dive off the top, and Disco sends him to the outside, returning the favour by whipping Leparka into the guardrail, hitting a clothesline of his own, and dropping him neck first on the guardrail. We don't see it, but I think Disco does some dance-based taunting in the ring while Leparka sells. That's a real shame because the they talk about him showboating, but we don't see it. Mm. And we've seen. LaParka mock Disco's dancing. And I wanted to see if Disco was going to mock LaParka's dancing, but we don't see. We'll never know. Mm. Well, LaParka does know Sell the Mist Dive, and I did that as well. Disco attempts to bring LaParka back into the ring, but LaParka drops him over the top rope and heads into the ring under his own steam before booting Disco in the stomach. LaParka covers for a two, but Disco gets his foot on the ropes. LaParka applies a chin lock, but Disco powers his way out of it. Leparka hits a drop toe hold and ties Disco up with a La Mahistral cradle for a two count. Which was, which was lovely. Mm. Leparka hits a chop in the corner and does some more dancing. Leparka gets another two off a drop kick in the corner and applies the chin lock again, gouging the eyes of the Disco Inferno. Leparka misses a charge in the corner and Disco hits a big back elbow for a two count. 
Leparka, hits an absolute whopper of a kick to the top of Disco's head, which he sells. Mm. Mm. A cool sequence sees Leparka charge Disco, who is backed up on the ropes. Disco uses his shoulder to send Leparka over the top rope, but Leparka lands on the apron. When Disco turns around, Leparka sort of leaps himself into sitting on the top rope, where he hurricane runs Disco to the outside. Nice. Leparka hits a tope suicida to the outside, which Heenan asks, does that come with chips and salsa? <laughs> Back inside, Leparka gets a two. Parker charges Disco in the corner, but is met by repeated boots before going shoulder first into the ring post. Disco hits an atomic drop and a clothesline for a two count, while Bobby Heenan calls for the chart buster. Disco hits a swinging neckbreaker for a two count before wailing away on Leparka in the corner. When referee Scott Dickinson tries to calm Disco down, he hits the official with a backhand, seemingly blinding him. <laughs> Leparka hits Disco with a huge chop and grabs his trademark chair. Leparka sets it up and sits Disco on it in the middle of the ring. Leparka heads to the top rope, but Disco cuts him off as the referee regains his vision. Mike Tenay claims he can't do anything about the chair, as, well, nobody has used it, and more importantly, he doesn't know who brought it into the ring. He could just take it out of the ring, though. Well, yes, and also definitely not the guy who used that exact chair to air guitar down to the mm. ring. Definitely not him. Might be the other guy. Disco joins Leparka on the second rope, but Leparka knocks him down before Disco throws Leparka off the second rope, face first into the chair. Disco hits the chart buster for the three count at eleven forty-one. Well, let's let's talk about that chair bump first of all because I thought that was woefully disappointing. It's <laughs> <laughs> not because like it looked like it was going to be set up for some big like and and albeit like unnecessarily big and horrible bump into the chair like some kind of big suplex like uh, they make me really uncomfortable. Where you get like those big moves like onto the spine of the chair. But that's yeah. what you wanted to see. Well, it's not what I wanted to see, but it's almost what I was expected to say. I feel like I've been conditioned that that's the sort of thing that would happen now. Yeah. But, like, the move, like, looked so tame. It was just like, that's not a, a good use of a chair. That, that's not going to really incapacitate anyone. I thought the use of the stunner was interesting. So were you expecting to see that? Presumably not. No, I, I didn't I didn't know what the chart buster was. I haven't, I haven't got a clue. What do you think of La Parker? Oh, I think he's amazing. He's a dancing Mexican skeleton. Adam, what do you think of Le- I, I agree with Stuart. He is a dancing Mexican skeleton, and that is brilliant. I'm not so I'm not so up on him as you guys. What? Why not? Do you not think his dancing was amazing? And his taunting of the crowd with dancing. Yeah. No, I, I put the Parker's tiresome here and and boring. Like I've got to say, to be completely honest, when you've gone through that match and described it, I thought that match sounds quite good, but I didn't enjoy it when I watched it last night. It's the same match. I'm not going through yeah, like, something different. Not made, made up different moves. I recognise bits, <laughs> but yeah, I don't. That that to me, it, it didn't kind of come across in, in in what I was watching. That I loved that match because I didn't love it when I watched it. Like, there's some nice spots in it, by all means, but for me, it was like overly long as well. I I really like it, and it might help that I really like the Parker and I really like the Disco Inferno as well. I was in a no-lose position with this. Mm. I, I thought it, I was just going to enjoy it, whatever. I'm not that keen on Disco Inferno either. I'll, I'll level that with you. you. You could have lost. Virgil could have run down and beat them both up. Yeah, that would have been really upsetting. I thought this was perfectly fine mid-card fodder. Like, it wasn't designed to be anything spectacular, but as just being a kind of fun undercard match, I was perfectly okay with this. Fun. It was fun. Yeah. It, they basically have a dance-off. You like Strictly? Well, one of these days, boys, I'm going to have to take you to out and show you what fun is. 
<laughs> okay, you can do that as long as I can take you out and show you what fun is the next weekend. Oh, I'm dubious about that. I might take deals <laughs> off. The crowd reaction wasn't great, I'll give you that, but these two aren't exactly presented as big stars on television, so it's a bit of a, a random kind of undercard mm. match. There's no real build to it either, is there? It's, there it's, ha- well, it's happening for no real reason. Compared to the last match we saw, where there was very in-depth storytelling. Yeah. This is just, this guy came out and it's all with a chair. They're having a match. Mm. The kick Laparka did to the top of Disco's head was easily my favourite moment of the match, and I actually think is worth going and seeing it for because it looks awesome. Not all the guardrail stuff. <laughs> Depends how you feel about guardrails. Apparently WCW hate them. Or love them, I don't know which one. All right, Tony, thank you very much. Joining me at this time is the chairman of the WCW Executive Committee, J.J. Dillon. There has been talk back in the locker rooms, on the road, regarding the possible reinstatement of referee Nick Patrick. Now, I, I, I don't want to speculate on it. I wanted to bring you out. I know after Starcade, you suspended the man. You then gathered information. You've been investigating this man. And apparently, J.J., you have now come to a decision regarding the future of one Nick Patrick. Yes, the decision has been made. At this time, I would like to ask Nick Patrick to come out here and join us. Uh, he, he's been embroiled in controversy since Starcade. Um... I have to say there's been a lot of trash talk. Nobody stepped forward to make any formal accusations. We reviewed the tape, the tapes. We didn't find really anything improper in there. And so uh, after a group of lawyers representing Mr. Patrick spent the greater part of the day with attorneys representing WCW and TBS, the executive committee met privately, took a vote, and I'm very pleased to announce, Mr. Patrick, that effective immediately you have been reinstated without any restrictions. I'm reinstated as of right now. Yeah! How about that? I, I didn't expect it quite that soon. I knew, Easy. Hey, I knew hey. you guys would see the light. I knew you'd see the light, Mr. Dillon. And I want you to know that this is one of the happiest moments of my life. And I'm for all you fans out there that stuck behind me throughout this whole ordeal, and for my family out there watching, I'd like to take this opportunity to say that I am so glad that tonight, it's tonight's main event, that I'm going to be able to vindicate my name in front of all of you people out here. I'm going to call this match right down the middle, just the way I see it. And if you want to clock my count, what? what? Excuse me, excuse me. Um, I, I appreciate the fact that you're excited to be reinstated. I'm sure you're going to have lots of opportunities to officiate main events, but... Though I said you were reinstated, I didn't say you were the official for the main event tonight. As a matter of fact, you are not the official selected to officiate tonight's main event. Good call. Thank you. Good call. Now, wait, now, wait a second. Now, wait a second. You heard him. You are not going to be the no, no. official for tonight. No, 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 Your name no, no. was not drawn. I, I, if he reinstated me, that means that I am the head official of WCW once again. You're not going to call the match. As far as I'm concerned, they shouldn't even have to draw straws. And what? My back pay. What about my back pay? He never even mentioned my back pay. I'm going to talk. This isn't over. You had better get a hold of James Dillon yourself there, Nick Patrick, reinstated. And I guess that's good news, but not tonight, Mr. Patrick. Not tonight. Mean Gene Oakland is stood by with the chairman of the WCW Executive Committee, J.J. Dillon. I've got a lot to say about that segment, actually. He gets booed by the crowd. Gene wants to ask about the reinstatement of referee Nick Patrick, which Dillon has apparently come to a decision on. Dillon invites Patrick to join him, which Patrick does. Dylan tells Patrick he's been reinstated as of right now. Wow. Woo. Patrick jumps around and gives Mean Gene a kiss. 
<laughs> Patrick promises to call the main event right down the middle and says tonight he'll clear his name. Dylan stops him, saying that, yes, he is reinstated, but that he's not officiating tonight's main event. JJ Dylan leaves, and Patrick is pissed when he realises Dylan said nothing about his back pay, running after JJ to end the segment. Coming soon to pay-per-view, Nick Patrick's HR extravaganza. Mm-hmm. All right, like a question. Yeah. Well, a couple of questions. Why do people booing Dylan? Is he a heel head at the minute, or is it just like they just don't like him? He, he wears a suit. He's oh. kind of, you know, he represents the corporate side of the oh, WCW. They're booing the man, then. Yeah. Okay. They're booing the um, job rather than the man. And what planet is he on? Because <laughs> why is he reinstating Nick Patrick? He's been cleared, man. Well, well, we'll cover it more when we get to the main event, but basically Hulk Hogan's bought Nick Patrick some lawyers. So there's no evidence to suggest Nick Patrick's done anything wrong ever. Apart from all those pay-per-views where he's crooked as fuck. Well, there's that, but... <laughs> it's, yeah. It's all right, Nick. I, I know you've been a bit shifty in this last two years in every single thing you've fucking done, but you can have your job back. No problem. Blank slate. Forgive and forget. Like, why? Is it simply he's got some lawyers? So... J.J. Dillon's now got to say this. Also, I think at this point, WCW are quite short on referees, so, you know, without paying for sort of facial reconstructive surgery, they, they, they need him on the books. Supply and demand, supply and demand. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's a buyer's market. Yeah. What, what, what it's was, a referee's market. What was your judgment of this bit of TV? It's good mullet. It is good mullet. You can't argue that. Yeah. <laughs> it sets up a piece of story for the main event, so I was fine with it, and it is something that's kind of ongoing on television, so again... I'm I'm fine with it. And I quite like Nick Patrick in this. I think his character work's actually quite good. You two are making me feel very... Like, is this, is this a setup? Cause, no. Because I thought it was really tedious. <laughs> no, I quite like the fact that you know he's crooked, but he's so just playing it in this terrible manner that, you know, he's concerned about his back pain. He's definitely going to do the right thing. We've heard all this before but he's still going on and harping on about it. And the thing is, he definitely looks shifty as well. His goatee is that of a crooked referee. Basically, it's it's, it's mirrored Star Trek universe, isn't it? Yeah. It's it's evil Nick Patrick. What you're saying is there is a parallel universe out there with a clean-shaven, completely legitimate Nick Patrick. (laughs) Who calls every match down the middle and doesn't listen to Hulk Hogan. And no one's ever doubted his integrity whatsoever. Yeah. I'm wondering if this show's better than I thought it was. I don't know. So, so when we got around Paul's house, he he was positively miserable about this pay per view, and, and Adam Genuinely. and I were quite perplexed by this. As this is a decent show. All right, question, Paul. Adam, were you in a tired and miserable mood, and did you watch this at about midnight last night? I started at about half ten last night, and I watched the rest of it later on this morning. And and there might be a match. There might be a point where like my attitude changes. <laughs> <laughs> So I, just yeah. I think you, you're in perhaps a bad mood when you watched it and it's transferred. transferred yeah, transferred, yeah, a bit of transfer. But hopefully our good mood can be transferred over to you. Well, well maybe. Like, I'm kind of listening to you talk about it and thinking, this is perhaps better than I thought. And, and certainly, like, there's, there is a lot of good moves that we've seen tonight. But I don't know if good moves always just translates into good matches. Well, for me, we've still got the three best matches of the show to go. We do, we, a- we, ha- we do have the best matches of the show to go. That is true. And it's been a relatively strong opening to the pay-per-view, I would say. Yeah, as far as like a first like 45 minutes to the pay-per-view, that was perfectly after, acceptable. After a, after a dismal opening video, 
we've actually had some decent matches. Yeah. See, I, I, I'll be honest, I wasn't grabbed by it, but up to this point I wasn't, I wasn't raving about this. We were sitting here, grumbling, got to watch WCW again, and you just then decided that everything's going to be bad. No, I don't think it was that. Like, I no, I don't think I was necessarily expecting it to be bad. I was just not blown away by the opener, because often when we do watch WCW, usually the first match or two is usually my favourite. Often we start with a cruiserweight match that, you know, is Ray, Eddie, Di Malenko, like somebody that I've got a really high opinion of. Ultimo Dragon. Yeah. (laughs) Di Malenko. Chris Jericho, Rey Mysterio, your list of people you've heard of. Morgan Freeman. Nelson Mandela. Martina Navratilova. And Myla Kunis. Up next is Goldberg versus Brad Armstrong. Since we last saw Goldberg at Starcade, his streak has continued uninterrupted, defeating Glacier, Bobby Eaton, Stevie Ray, Brad Armstrong, Barry Horowitz, Jerry Flynn, Chavo Guerrero Jr., Meng, Kendall Windham, Eugene Nagata, Sergeant Buddy Lee Parker, Mark Starr, Disco Inferno, Jim Powers, Stephen Regal, Hugh Morris and Fit Finley, all in relatively short order, bringing him to 39-0. Really? Is Bobby Eaton still there? Yep. That's What's he doing? Losing to Goldberg. Well, that's like a real who's who of still, who's still getting paid by WCW. <laughs> this is announced as a special unadvertised match. Brad Armstrong makes his way out to mild booze, having shorn his mullet. In fact, I was one of the ones booing him. He looks in good shape, I'd say. His hair doesn't. As we pan across the crowd, we see Lodi holding a sign that says, yes, we'll hold signs for food. Hmm. Goldberg makes his entrance to a decent reaction. Brad Armstrong, welcome to Destination Fucked. I've got to say, Goldberg looks pretty good as well. Yes, he does, doesn't he? I've, I've really seen very little of this Goldberg where it's quite exciting. Goldberg takes Armstrong down with a back heel trip out of a full Nelson. Armstrong tries for fists, but Goldberg rolls Armstrong through for a leg bar. Bobby Heenan continually puts Goldberg over, saying that Goldberg is making him consider managing again. That's how impressed he is. That's a good bit of commentary. Armstrong hits a gorilla press into a front power slam, which gets a big reaction. And that's an amazing move. Yeah, it's just very smooth. Goldberg hits an overhead belly-to-belly suplex as Brad begs off in the corner. Armstrong tries a comeback with kicks and fists before hitting a side Russian leg sweep, which Tanay says is his trademark manoeuvre that has won him many matches over the years. Who has ever won a match with a side Russian leg sweep? Brad Armstrong. Do you win all his matches like that? Apparently. Do you win one. many matches? And not this one, though, as Goldberg gets straight <laughs> up and hits an overhead pump handle suplex, right. which is fucking amazing. Yeah. Move you, of the night. Have you ever seen one of those before? I've never seen it. Because it was great fun. It's like, oh, he's going to pump handle. It's going to be a slam or a drop. No, it's a fucking suplex. suplex. There must be a good reason that I don't remember seeing it before and or since. It's really horrendously dangerous. It must be, because here it looks absolutely brilliant. Because I guess the way that you throw them, they're liable to spin anywhere around. Could be it. So you probably don't want to be doing it too much, but it does look cool as you like. But if you're Goldberg and Brad Armstrong's wrestling, you just do it. I guess so. <laughs> Goldberg hits the spear to a mega reaction and nails the jackhammer for the three count at 2.23, holding Armstrong with only one arm for a period of time. Can can I ask, are WCW rings smaller than WWF rings? Yes, I think they are slightly smaller. Because it really doesn't look like they've got much space to get a head of steam up for the spear. But this was an awesome match. This is the best thing on this show. 
This was really good. Like, I, I, I genuinely thought this was perfectly booked. And I was quite excited to see Goldberg looking like an absolute monster because I've not really seen that before, I'll be honest with you. And is this the reason why Goldberg becomes like their biggest star? Is because this is what he does and it's amazing to watch. And yeah. people will just pay to go see this. Yeah. Leave it at that. I'm happy. The crowd react big for the wing, and so they fucking should because this was awesome. Yeah, just show me that overhead pump handle suplex over and over again because it was bloody awesome. Since finishing the Mongo feud, this is basically what Goldberg has been doing week after week. And as you can see, it's getting him over. Yeah. Whilst you might not consider the match itself pay-per-view worthy per se, getting Goldberg on pay-per-view is clearly the right move. And having him destroy people like this is clearly working. So I'm happy with this being on a paid show. Mm. Yeah. Loved it. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Up next is Chris Jericho versus Juventud Guerrera in a WCW Cruiserweight title versus mask match. Title versus mask, you say? Towards the end of 1997, Chris Jericho began to embark upon a losing streak on WCW Nitro, losing to Rey Mysterio Jr., Buff Bagwell, Scott Hall, and Buff Bagwell again, before being defeated by Kurt Hennig on the December 29th show, after which he had a tantrum and smacked the ring post with a steel chair. On the following week's January 5th, 1998 episode of Nitro, Jericho would head to the ring for his match with Diamond Dallas Page, carrying both a steel chair and a suit. Prior to the match, Jericho apologised for his actions the previous week, claiming that they weren't the actions of the real Chris Jericho. Jericho claimed he was an icon across the globe and that a lot of people around the world looked up to him, and as such, he was apologising to ring announcer Dave Penzer, presenting him with a new chair for him to sit on, as well as a brand new suit. Jericho would lose in short order to Page, again having a fit after the contest, screaming and shouting about the loss. Jericho would once again apologise for his behaviour on the January 8th Thunder before losing to Ric Flair in their first ever singles match, having another temper tantrum and ripping up poor Penzer's new suit. The angle would be repeated for the third time in a week during the main event segment of the January 10th WCW Saturday night after another Jericho loss to DDP. After Mongo put Jericho down with the tombstone on the January 12th Nitro, rather than getting pissed at Dave Penzer, Jericho instead grabbed a mic and had a go at the crowd, until he realised the show was on the air when he went back to issuing a fake apology. Irked when Rey Mysterio Jr.'s music hit as he wasn't finished talking, Jericho attacked Rey when he made it to the ring, prior to Mysterio facing Juventud Guerrera for the Cruiserweight title, about that Hoovy won in short order. He wouldn't be so lucky on the January 15th Thunder when Ray beat Guerrera for the strap, a belt that WCW played hot potato with in early 1998. Earlier in the same show, Chris Jericho would turn his fortunes around, beating Eddie Guerrero to become number one contender to the title, setting up Mysterio vs Jericho at sold out. Prior to that, Jericho would pick up a win against Guerrero with the Lion Tamer on the January 19th Nitro. Jericho would continue his assault on Hoovy after the bell, with Mysterio Jr. making the save. The masked luchadors would together send Jericho packing after a series of double-team moves. Jericho would make one final attempt to disrupt Ray's momentum heading into Sold Out by interfering in his cruiserweight title defence against Eddie Guerrero on the January 22nd Thunder, something Guerrero was less than pleased with, though he would decide to join in on a post-match beatdown on Ray Jr., Jericho would go on to capture the Cruiserweight title from Mysterio at Sold Out on January 24th, in part necessitated by Mysterio requiring knee surgery for a torn anterior cruciate ligament and torn meniscus, sustained in early January. 
post-match, Jericho would cut a promo, claiming that this was the greatest moment of his life and telling the crowd, you like me, you really, really like me. When he realised they were booing him, Jericho angrily told the audience he'd give them a reason to boo him, a vicious assault on Mysterio's knee that required Ray to be carried out by officials. Jericho would appear on the January 26th Nitro for an interview with Mike Tanay, wearing a Ray Mysterio t-shirt. Completely disingenuously, Jericho would dedicate his title victory to Ray. No, wait, first to himself, then his fans the world over, and then finally Mysterio. On the verge of tears that he promised himself he wouldn't do, Jericho then wished Mysterio well in his recovery, because nobody wanted to see him in the ring ever again. Injured. The following week's February 2nd Nitro would see Jericho reference for the first time his Jericho-holics prior to a cruiserweight title defence against Super Kolo. Somewhat randomly, Jericho would attack Juventud Guerrera following a victory over El Dandy on the February 9th episode of Nitro, though Jericho would claim he was merely out there to compliment Juvi. Guerrera then, as translated by Jericho, challenged Jericho to a cruiserweight title match. Jericho declined the offer, claiming that Juventud was a one-hit wonder, like Dexy's Midnight Runners. Guerrera then offered to put his mask on the line <laughs> against Jericho's title, a challenge that Lionheart accepted, if only to show everyone how ugly Hoovy really is. A video package narrated by Mike Tenay, hyping Guerrera's high-flying skill, would air prior to a cruiserweight title defence by Chris Jericho over Chavo Guerrero Jr. on the February 12th Thunder. Hoovy would appear after the match, forcing Jericho to release the Lion Tamer on Chavo, though Jericho would take the advantage and almost remove Hooventude's mask over a week before their pay-per-view bout. He would successfully remove the mask a few days later on the February 19th Thunder, following Hoovy's bout with Kidman. Unfortunately for Jericho, Guerrera would be wearing a mask underneath his mask and hit a dropkick from the top rope to a celebrating Jericho to send him packing. Jericho would cut one final promo to hype the bout later in the same show prior to his own match with Dean Malenko. Jericho would claim that he had already seen Hooventude without the mask on and that he was really, really ugly and looked like Quasimodo. Jericho claimed he wasn't sure he could handle the responsibility of subjecting all of his Jericho-holics to Guerrera's ugly mug. Jericho claimed he would beat Hooventude at Super Brawl, but may let him keep the mask on to avoid seeing his horrendous face more than once. I should also add that for some reason, and you may notice this here, Jericho has taken to not removing the Cruiserweight title when he wrestles, which mm. must have been really, really uncomfortable. Yeah. Mm. Hooventude Guerrero makes his way to the ring to excellent mariachi music. <laughs> He looks absolutely fired up for this one, as Mike Tenay talks about how much Juventud is putting on the line in this one, his mask, his identity, and maybe even his career. Dex's Midnight Runners. Yeah, I was going to go back to that. They had two hits, right? Come on, Eileen. What was the other one? Gino. Oh, yeah. Maybe that wasn't a hit in America. Chris Jericho is out next to booze. He finds a I'm a Jericho-holic sign and rips it up, with Tony Schiavone talking about what a jerk Jericho has become. Yep, yeah, complete bellend. In the ring, Jericho refuses to take the belt off once the bell rings, with Tanay saying he saw Jericho in a restaurant and in a gym wearing the belt. Jericho throws a fit as the crowd chant that he sucks. They lock up and Jericho backs Guerrero into the ropes, making a big deal out of breaking clean. They lock up again and Jericho applies an armbar. Guerrero flips out of it, but Jericho hits chops before Hoovy hits a spin kick to the stomach of Jericho, which Jericho sells as having winded him due to the fact he's still wearing the belt. 
See, I can't work out whether that would be worse or better. So does he wear the the belt for the entire match? No, he just like, takes it off after well, that. Well, I know this match, but in the matches that he's been having where he's been doing this. No, generally these sorts of situations arise. I'm surprised that the ref doesn't just take it off him because, you know, were you to do a splash on someone, it would be a weapon. True. Mm. At this point, he decides to pass it to the referee. Guerrero hits a spinning wheel kick to the face of Jericho and applies a chin lock, which Jericho quickly reverses into an armbar. Jericho hits chops to Hoovy on the ropes before Hoovy hits a head scissors. Jericho sends Guerrero onto the apron, but Hooventude springboards back into the ring and catches Jericho with another kick to the face that sends him to the apron. Guerrero springboards onto the top rope and head scissors Jericho to the floor, which looks slightly clumsy. On the outside, Jericho buys himself time, allowing the referee to count him out, looking around intermittently to see if Hoovy is around. <laughs> that yeah, that was good heel work, yeah. Guerrero spots this and elbow drops Jericho hard from the apron. Back in the ring, and Jericho takes over, kicking Guerrero in the corner. Jericho goes for a German suplex, but Guerrero flips out of it. When Juventud charges Jericho for a Hurricane Rana, Jericho drops him throat first over the top rope. With Hoovy seeking respite on the apron, Jericho leaps to the top rope and hits a drop kick that sends Guerrero to the floor. Nice. I can do it too. I can fly, Jericho tells the camera. Jericho joins Guerrero on the outside and hits a scoop slam. He moves the ring steps and runs at Guerrero using the steps as a vault. But Guerrero drops Jericho hard. Onto the guardrail. But I've got to say, this was the best use of the guardrail all night. Yeah, it looked pretty awesome, yeah. Guerrero rolls Jericho back into the ring and springboards at him, but Jericho catches Hooventud and hits a tombstone. Nice. Mm. It's weird that he's using the tombstone when like Mon- I thought Mongo would have that as just his finisher. I guess it doesn't look exactly like a tombstone, but that was the closest thing I yeah. kind of yeah. equated it to. Jericho continues to sell the throat, but eventually makes the cover for it too. Jericho hits what I've got as a screaming forearm to Guerrero <laughs> and does a cocky pin for a two count. Ah, the cocky pin. Great Smackdown move. Yeah. Do you ever win a game with it? Could you win a game with I'm it? I'm not entirely sure. Guerrero rolls Jericho up for a two count, but Jericho fights back quickly with a big kick. Jericho hits a stalling vertical suplex and a senton with a lazy cover for a two count. Jericho hits a backbreaker and bends Guerrero over his knee, telling the referee to ask him. Jericho tells the official that he heard Hoovy give up and celebrates a win that the referee tells him hasn't <laughs> happened yet. Jericho and Guerrero trade chops before Jericho hits a big clothesline for a one count that's broken up as Guerrero is under the ropes. One negative to the commentary in this match, which for the most part is quite good, is that they spend too much time in the middle of it talking about Hogan Sting, Savage Luger, and an appearance later on in the show by the Giant. I know not talking about the match that's happening is kind of a WCW trope, but given that this match is mask versus title, it seems a fairly high-stakes bout to be distracted by other things. Jericho sets Guerrero up on the top turnbuckle, but Guerrero shoves him off. Hooventude leaps off the ropes, looking for a Hurricane Rana, but Jericho blocks it. Hooventude manoeuvres to facing the other way on Jericho's shoulders, but Jericho electric chairs him to the mat. That was an awesome move. Jericho goes to the top, but Hooventude drop kicks him in the arse to the outside. Jericho looks to bail, but when he turns around, Hooventude springboards to the top and hits Air Hoovy halfway down the aisle, wiping Jericho out. That's amazing. Is that one of his regular moveset? 
he seems to have done it more recently when he's tag teaming with Hector Garza or Liz Mark Jr. And he'll kind of run across the ring and launch off their back. But I guess given that they're not there, like he's just done a springboard version of it. It's really cool. The distance he gets on it is really impressive. They call it the, the air hoovy. Yes. Yeah. Back in the ring, Hooventude hits something akin to a Michinoku driver, followed by a 450 splash to a pop. The referee counts three, but as the bell rings, he notices Jericho had his hand on the ropes. Referee Mickey J explains this to Guerrera, and as he does, Jericho takes out Guerrera's knee. Jericho looks for a German suplex, but Hoovy leans forward and rolls Jericho up for a two count. Jericho hits a clothesline for a two of his own. Jericho looks for a powerbomb, but Guerrera turns it into a DDT for a two. That's a cool reversal. Excellent, yeah. Guerrera sets Jericho up on the top rope and looks for a Hurricane Rana, but Jericho pushes him away. Guerrera lands on his feet, though, and when Jericho dives off, he catches the champion with an atomic drop. Guerrera sits Jericho on the top rope and springboards from the apron onto Jericho's shoulders for a lovely Hurricane Rana. Mm. It gets Guerrera a two. Jericho powers out of a backslide and spins Guerrero around to hit a nice backward suplex, which the crowd react for. Jericho misses the lion soul, but when he looks for the lion tamer, Guerrero rolls him up for a two count. Guerrero looks for another Hurricane Rana, but on his way down, Jericho steals the momentum and places Juventude in the lion tamer, where he taps, giving Jericho the win at 13.29. I'm still the champ and I dedicate this win to all of you lovable happy Jericho-holics hey Hoovy you're forgetting something come on Hoovy take off your mask bro maybe something if it was Oakland under there let's see what you got there Quasi juice. I, I don't think. I don't think the issue Come here. Come on, quasi forever. Is what he looks like or who it is. The Ladies fact and gentlemen, is that he's unmasked please, is the issue here. If you have a weak heart, or if you get sick easily, please close your eyes or leave the building now, because this guy is ugly. Take that mic away, mic away from him. You don't have to stay. You can leave if you want. You know how hard this has Come to be on, for Quasi. moving to to have to do this? Come on. This is taking far too long here. Post-match, Jericho demands the referee gives him his title and raise his hand. Jericho demands a microphone and celebrates his victory, saying he really, really did it. He thanks all of the Jericho-holics and dedicates his win to them. As Guerrera prepares to unmask, Jericho tells him, Come on, bro. Heenan quips, wouldn't it be something if it was Oakland under there? <laughs> it's one of my favourite lines of his. Let's see what you've got under there, quasi-juice, taunts Jericho. Jericho tells anyone with a weak heart or anyone who gets sick easily to leave the building as this guy is ugly. Shivani demands someone take away Jericho's mic. This is taking far too long here, says Jericho, who whips Hooventude's mask away. Guerrero looks genuinely upset as Mike Tenay talks about how he probably feels like he's let his family down. The crowd boo for some reason as Guerrero reveals his face. At least now when he's delivering pizzas, people will know who he is, says the brain. That's not funny, retorts Tony, as we see highlights of the bout to end the segment. 
very enjoyable. Felt like a big deal. Jericho is a, just a colossal nutsack for the entire thing, and he's got that down. And uh, we saw part of his, you know, his old face run, and it wasn't overly good. And it's well documented that he finds his groove when he suddenly turns heel, and you can see why because he's so funny yet unlikable at the same time. I'm a bit perplexed as to why the unmasking happened. Does it need to happen? Because he's quite young, isn't he? Yeah, he's like 21. Yeah, so he's relatively new into his career and the masks are an important thing to continue on. And so that didn't make too much sense to me. But apart from that, the match was great. I thought it was pretty good, actually, yeah. So I just wonder whether it was actually Chris Jericho in this match because the smile he does at the start when he's coming to the ring does not look like him. You think it's a different person? Well, no, I don't actually think it's a different person. I'm being facetious, but um, <laughs> no. do you know what I mean? Like, he just he looks a little bit different, like facially, kind of like his smile. But but yeah, I thought there's some good stuff in this match. That spot on the guardrail, as I said, is the best guardrail spot tonight, and that's saying something with the amount of guardrail spots that there is. You mm. could easily make a top ten. Yeah, the, the pile drive was great. The electric chair drop was great. The the air hoover was great. Four fifty splash. Nice DDT, reverse suplex. Yeah, there's there's some good stuff in this match actually, and I thought for the most part it was was pretty. Yeah, there's a lot good. going on, and it's fast paced and interesting. Yeah, I mean, I, I I do perhaps wonder if they should have made more about the importance of the mask in this. That kind of some of the stuff that we've seen before. So, because Mike Tanay did that series about the luchadors, didn't he? Yeah, and I feel that. Then it was given like a precedence, like here's the heritage. This is important. It means something, and it wasn't quite presented in the same way in this bout. But as a match, it was pretty good. And I kind of thought, I kind of agree with Adam. I thought the unmasking at the end was actually a little bit unnecessary. They could have just had it as a title match. Well, as far as the unmasking goes, the general consensus is that unmasking the cruiserweights was just something Eric Bischoff decided he wanted to do, so he was just going to do it. Obviously, we saw he planned to do it with Rey Mysterio Jr. at Halloween Havoc 97 because apparently he felt that the luchadors were unmarketable whilst wearing masks. Despite, despite the fact you sell loads of masks. masks. yeah. Yeah, unless, you know, you actually sold the masks at the merch stands, which by all accounts is not something WCW did. Oh, really? Apparently well, not. Well, no wonder. <laughs> no wonder we had that attitude then, like, oh dear. But where's the, the sense in it, really? What does removing the mask do for them? Like a load of their character is wrapped up in the mask. Well, I think it is just down to he wants to do it. So he's going to do it. It's, I mean, it's just interesting. It was when we did the Chikara review and you're talking about how expressive those guys can be in their masks. I guess there's perhaps a worry that it's hard to connect yeah. with with people wearing masks. But there's a long tradition people. of it and yeah. it clearly works. Oh, yeah. And, and you can do masks in several different ways. So, you, you know, like Mankind's masks are very distinctive and very good. Kane's masks... It does really surprise me that they're not selling the masks. Yeah. I would think that was such an obvious thing, and the kids, like any kids that are going to this, would love to buy the masks. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, WWE did it with Rey Mysterio masks and probably make a fucking fortune off them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There is someone in a luchador mask in the crowd, isn't there? In yes, a green there is. one. Yes. It looks a bit like Mortis's mask, I thought. Is it? But it's definitely not Mortis's face's chubbier. But <laughs> chubbier face. Chubbier yeah. face. I mean, I mean, there'd probably be plenty of fans that would go... Buy a mask, assuming it's an adult size, and then find out that it's really a child size. <laughs> Bite off some uh, unscrupulous people in a car park off a trestle table. <laughs> How are you to know? <laughs> 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 
In a recent interview, Guerrero blamed youth and the desire to go with the flow as the reason he went along with the unmasking angle, despite it being something he was clearly uncomfortable with when it actually came to going through with it on camera. Mm. As the March 2nd, 1998 Wrestling Observer puts it, quote, The reason Guerrero at first kept his hair in front of his face when he unmasked was because he wanted to hide the fact he was crying, particularly when he said how much he loved his father, since this really was a big deal to him and his family, even though WCW doesn't give a rat's ass about wrestling or family tradition. Mm -hmm. End quote. We won't see it, but over the course of the following year, WCW would unmask the other two biggest name masked cruiserweights, Psychosis and Rey Mysterio Jr., the problem I find with unmaskings is that they're slightly anticlimactic. Yeah. It's generally just a bloke you've never seen <laughs> underneath it, the hood. Yeah. It's just a face. Yeah, it's just a guy. Yeah. Like, it's not like it's a shock reveal like, you know, Scooby-Doo, where it's the old fairground owner or anything like that. Yes. Or was... McMahon under the hood of the higher power. I mean, I never saw it live, but when Kane was kind of first properly unmasked... But at least they... Was, was that kind of a big deal then and suspenseful but at least with him they they made an attempt that when he took the mask off for the first time like his face was like he'd obviously done a lot of makeup and he had like bits of hair and stuff so there was like you were supposed to feel something about seeing him unmasked whereas with this it's just yeah there's a guy the match itself was really really good i thought jericho is excellent as a heel and guerrera even though he's flip-flopped from kind of face to heel was good here as a fired up baby face Not every spot was silky smooth, but I think they nailed most of the key ones. The catch into the tombstone and the catch into the Michinoku driver followed by the 450 were both excellent and the false finish was completely believable. Yeah. I really, really liked the finish also. The lion tamer being applied from the Hurricane Rana worked really well. Yes, it did, yes. Jericho was an absolute jerk and that is totally the right word for him in the post-match, which completely fits with how he's been acting since the start of the year. Well worth watching, I thought. Yeah, yeah, it's I'd, good. I'd, I'd go back and rewatch this. I think it's it's nice to see, I guess, a celebrated period of of Jericho, where he's he's doing something different and he really is gaining traction, and this match works well with Hoovy, and it's just a really nice match to watch. Up next is the British Bulldog Davy Boy Smith versus Steve Mongo McMichael. Should be a cracker. Hmm. After coughing up the required $150,000 to buy himself out of the remaining 32 months of his WWF contract, Davy Boy Smith made his return to WCW on the January 26th episode of Nitro, interrupting a Mike Tenay interview with Steve Mongo McMichael. Why exactly this would be Davy's first WCW feud, I'm not really sure. The only tenuous link I can think of is that Smith is a bulldog and Mongo owns a dog. <laughs> <laughs> like natural feud yeah that's the only connection i can make with mongo ranting about all these new boys from up north the bulldog appeared and told mongo that mcmichael may just be the big bone for him to chew on that sounds awful he's right though he is from the north yes <laughs> <laughs> i think he meant new york not like wigan and leeds leeds <laughs> Mongo then challenged the Bulldog to a match, which Davy Boy accepted, and then won in fairly short order with a somewhat botched running power slam. Mm. Bulldog Mongo 2 would go a whopping 63 <laughs> seconds the following week on the February 2nd Nitro, ending in a double countout when the pair brawled up the aisle and onto the announcer's set. But we did get a Mongo promo prior to the match, so there's that. I'm practically salivating over this match now. Bulldog Mongo 2. 
Sounds pretty epic, right? It does, it does sound epic. You know, earlier when Tony Schiavone was talking about the most anticipated rematch in the history of our sport, it wasn't Hogan and Sting, it was Bulldog Mongo 3. <laughs> Mongo would attack the Bulldog from behind on the February 5th Thunder, after Davey attempted to save Jim the Anvil Neidhart from an attack at the hands of Scott Hall and Louis Spicoli. Bulldog would once again save Neidhart on the February 12th Thunder, this time from an assault with the steel steps from Mongo, after a singles match between the Anvil and McMichael. Of all the people I wouldn't want to take a shot with the steel steps from, Mongo might be near the top. <laughs> mm. Mongo would then attack Davy Boy later in the broadcast after a victory over Sick Boy. Mongo and the Bulldog would have a backstage brawl for no particular reason on the February 16th Nitro, with, seriously, Mongo angry that Bulldog was drinking coffee whilst a man was talking to him, what? or something like that. This wow. is an actual segment that happened. Okay. Why is this... Why has Mongo been chosen? I mean, I know you had the dog thing, but the Bulldog's been around for a long time, and we've, we've been a big fan of his work. But we also know, as everyone else must know, that Bulldog can have amazing matches if he's with someone competent who can sort of like work with him well. So you bring him in and put him in Mongo, who has not been wrestling for very long and can be a good star in a match but again it has to be with the right people it feels like these two just aren't going to work well together it feels like the old adage in this instance of so and so can have a great match with a broom this is two brooms facing off with one another hmm. not that I, I wish to outright state Davy Boy Smith as being a broom <laughs> I'm not saying that but yes I completely see your point of yeah these are people who work well when they're programmed against better people yeah so Putting them together is not going to produce anything spectacular. There's way better things that both of these could be doing, but I don't understand why this is happening. Well, we've just seen like a really excellent kind of first hour of the show. We've seen a really excellent cruiserweight match. How can WCW top that? Mongo, that's how. McMichael <laughs> says, it's time for Mongo to teach this bulldog how to sit up and beg as he makes his way to the ring. Davy Boy Smith follows, wearing a Bulldog WCW cape, which he must have had made either fairly recently or in 1993. <laughs> Tony Schiavone talks about how the issues between these two have been conducted more outside of the ring than in the ring. Mongo attacks to open, but runs into a drop toe hold from Davy Boy Smith. Mongo fights back with kicks and seems to look for the tombstone early, but instead spins the Bulldog all the way around and drops him face first to the mat. Mongo chokes Davy Boy on the ropes and backs him into the corner to hit elbows. Mongo hits a scoop slam but misses a leg drop and Davy Boy instantly goes to work on Mongo's leg. Davy Boy applies the sharpshooter for some reason, which gets a small pop. That was quite confusing as well because you've just got Bret Hart. And Sting does that move. Yeah. Is Bret Hart still doing that move? Yeah. Got Is the... Bret Hart still doing yeah. that move? Well, did you come in and Sting's, well, I've been here longer, that's my move, to pick something else. No, they, they just do it, and Brett's is the sharpshooter and Stings is a scorpion. But yes, it's weird that then Davy Boy would just start doing it. Yeah. Mm. Why have I got in my notes rope whip balls kick? <laughs> I don't know. Let's see if we can decipher that going through the notes. Mm. Okay. Mongo makes it to the ropes, so Davy Boy breaks the hold and follows up with kicks until Mongo thumbs him in the eye. Bobby Heenan tries to compare Mongo to Bill Goldberg and Booker T as a rising star one of those is not like the others. <laughs> Mongo rubs Bulldog's face into the mat and throws him to the outside. 
Mongo hits a terribly gentle axe handle off the apron and throws Davy Boy into the guardrail before booting him in the stomach. The guardrail, is say. Mongo sends Davy Boy back first into the steel steps, but manages to duck when Mongo backs him up against the ring and looks for a lariat, meaning Mongo full-on punches the ring post. He does actually properly punch it, doesn't he? Yes. He's not really got that thing where he's supposed to look like a punch, but not really, because otherwise you won't break your hand. The bulldog goes to work on Mongo's hand, smashing it into the steel steps before bringing Mongo back into the ring. Mongo sends Davy Boy into the corner, where Davy Boy takes his upside down bump. Hmm, again, not someone I'd really be wanting to take that bump for or from. <laughs> Mongo goes to the three point stance, but his wrist gives out. You lean that heavily on. Oh, I don't know. He chop blocks Davy Boy twice anyway. Mongo looks to lift Davy Boy up for the tombstone, but his wrist hurts too much. Davy Boy takes Mongo down, applying an armbar, wrenching back on the wrist of Mongo. He doesn't give up, but the referee calls for the bell anyway at 6.10, giving the British Bulldog the win. The crowd boo as they realise Mongo didn't tap. Post-match, Mongo shoves referee Scott Dickinson down and screams into the camera as he stomps off to the back. This was less good. (laughs) That's one way of putting it. Yeah, it It was terrible. (laughs) That's another way of putting it. It's one of those problems that I have with this, like I said, I quite like both these guys. I really like the Bulldog. And I've got a soft spot for Mongo. I don't know why. Maybe it's his dog. But this was never going to work. And all it showed was this didn't work. Yeah. Really didn't enjoy it. It, I'm surprised it's six minutes. It felt like 25. (laughs) (laughs) To be fair, I didn't think this was diabolically awful. It wasn't good and it was bad. We've seen worse. But I've seen far worse and it was only six minutes so I'm not that upset about its existence. The finish was apparently stolen from a Japanese MMA finish at the end of 1997 minus the shoving the referee part. Mongo apparently did have a legitimate wrist forearm injury going into this one so I guess it makes sense that they made that part of the match although yeah if I had an injured wrist I wouldn't want to be punching a ring post. Yeah it doesn't seem like the most sensible thing to do. Feuding with Mongo midway through the show gives you an idea of exactly where Davy Boy Smith fits in with WCW. Unlike his previous tenure, he's not going to be pushed as a top star, and it's certainly lower than where he was on the WWF food chain. Yeah, I guess so. But there's so it's so bloated, isn't it, the roster, that you just bring in someone else in, and even though he's a big star, he's not a mega star. Yeah. So how is he ever going to breach into that top tier? He's probably not. He's just going to float around the, the mid-card. Yeah, I mean, when he comes into WCW in 93, he is a big deal. And obviously off the back of SummerSlam 92, they're, they're right to kind of position him at the top of the card. Yeah, And then towards the end of his WWF run, he's not like a top star and he's clearly not like a future main eventer or anything, but he's an important part of the show. Yeah. But you're right, like, and, and you use the word bloated to describe the WCW roster there. Like, one of the things I actually really like about WCW in early 1998 is the amount of variety and depth you've got. Like, okay, do I really want to see Greg the Hammer Valentine wrestle or Wayne Bloom or Mike Enos or any of these guys? But what it means is you don't necessarily have to see the Bariquas and the DOA have the same tag match every week. Do you know what I mean? Like, True. At least you can just bring in random people to have matches and occasionally you'll see someone and you just go, oh, I didn't realise they were there or they were still there. Like Marty Jannetty's had like a little mini feud with Raven for a few weeks and you just get random stuff like that. This is where 
he will fit in because the the top end of it is too heavily loaded. Oh yeah. So he, he has no chance of breaching into that. Plus he just spent spent one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I guess the other thing you can say about it is like literally everyone they bring from the WWF, like the first thing that happens when they come in is we do the whole, oh, are they going to join the NWO or are they not going to join the NWO? Bulldog, they don't even bother doing that. It's just he comes out, interrupts Mongo, and they decide to have a bit of a fight. Like, <laughs> that, and that sounds bad, doesn't it, for like someone the calibre of Davy Boy Smith? Like, yeah. But they don't even care about him that much to put him in that story. Has he got no friends as such? And I mean, obviously Brett's there, but Brett's quite new into it. Yeah, and Brett's got really zero political power there. So, yeah, what what's Brett going to do for him? I don't think he can angle for him to be any further up the card. And you know, you know, they've got hours and hours of television to fill. Like Nitro's three hours every week, Thunder's two hours, Saturday night is two hours, and then you've got stuff like Worldwide and Pro that that are an hour each. So that's why the roster's so big because they've got to fill all that television time. But mm. Yeah, where's the leverage to get Davy Boy any further up the card than he is? And there just isn't any. Mm-hmm. And obviously, he's not there for very long anyway, is he? No, the so. six months or so. Yeah. Up next is Diamond Dallas Page versus Chris Benoit for the WCW United States title. WCW announcers were often very fond of pointing out how the reason Chris Benoit hadn't held a title in the company because he was always tied up in very personal feuds, such as his lengthy conflicts with Kevin Sullivan and latterly Raven. Following a tag team match on the January 29th Thunder, where Benoit and Dean Malenko defeated Cruiserweight champion Chris Jericho and Eddie Guerrero, Mike Tenay interviewed Benoit about this very topic. Benoit claimed that he didn't need a title belt to prove how good he was. He was then interrupted from the crowd by WCW United States champion Diamond Dallas Page, who likened himself to Benoit, saying that both of them had been overlooked in WCW with promoters not seeing them as main eventers. Page said these promoters were wrong about him and that he thought they were wrong about Benoit as well. DDP said that since the promoters wouldn't make the match, he wanted to hear whether the people wanted to see Benoit challenge for his US title. Turns out the audience was up for it, as was Benoit, with Page making the match for the following Thursday's Thunder. Page would cut a promo on both the February 2nd Nitro and the February 5th Thunder prior to the match, reiterating the reasons why he was giving Benoit a crack at his title. The bout itself would go to a no contest when Raven and the Flock interfered, keen to not let Benoit forget their issue. DDP would then prevent a further beatdown of Benoit by clearing the Flock from the ring. Benoit would face off with Raven on the February 7th episode of WCW Saturday Night, though the match would go a mere 33 seconds when the flock ran in as Benoit set up for the crossface. It would also be announced that Benoit would get a rematch with DDP for the US title at Super Brawl, despite the fact that, as Benoit put it, Raven wouldn't let him close the book on their feud. Raven and Benoit would have a reprise of their sold-out bout in a fun brawl on the February 12th Thunder that ultimately ended with flock interference and a beatdown of Benoit. DDP would make the save, hitting the ring through the crowd to run off Raven's lackeys. Benoit would tell Page that he hadn't needed the help, though Page was as insistent that he did. A tag team bout pitting Page and Benoit against Raven and Saturn on the February 19th Thunder would be announced on the February 16th Nitro, with Page challenging Raven, who was seated at ringside with the flock, to a match there and then. 
Raven would tease answering DDP's challenge, though quickly Saturn would get into the ring also, before Chris Benoit came out to even the odds and the flock members bailed. Page and Benoit would pick up the win in the tag team bout when Benoit forced Saturn to tap out to the crippler crossface as DDP dropped Raven with the diamond cutter. Chris Benoit enters to a decent reaction as the announcers put over that Benoit is one of the greatest wrestlers in WCW not to hold a title. Does he ever hold a title in this company? Yes. Okay. Doesn't he hold the title when he leaves? Yes, technically. Great idea. Diamond Dallas Page is out next to a big pop, though sadly he is now minus Kimberly, who is primarily a Nitro girl these days. She just stopped being his on-screen valet now. Yeah, it's it's kind of weird with DDP after he wins the US title. Like, he doesn't really do a lot for a month, which seems weird because yeah. there was such a big build to him actually becoming US champion that when he wins it, like, then not a lot happens until he comes out and says to Benoit, like, oh, uh, you know, I feel I was overlooked, you're overlooked, let's have a match kind of thing. It, it's really odd. Like, I don't feel like they really capitalise on Paige there. They've run out of things to do for him. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, and that's, again, going back to the sort of depth of WCW's roster, they are able to kind of, like, cycle people in and out. So, sold out in January, you know, one of the main hooks of that is Bret Hart and Ric Flair in a singles match that's actually pretty good. Neither of those guys are, like, mentioned on this show. Yeah. So... Yeah, like Paige isn't really featured on that either, whereas here he is. So, yeah, I, I guess they've just got the options to do that. And they've just kept Kimberly being Nacho Girl. Yeah, turning up at fraternity houses with me and Gene Oakland. Hmm. And it would have been good to have a Nacho party, wouldn't it? Yes. Like an actual one. Now we're sure they are happening. Yeah, they're, they're definitely happening now because, yeah, me and Gene will turn up with the Nitro Girls. Tony the Tiger's been kicked from it. Yeah, like that, that. that's weird, isn't it? Like all those segments through like 96 and early 97 where they'd have him kind of, oh, he's on the road at this Nitro party, but you can't see it, you can just hear him on the phone. So and he's the Nitro party guy. He, yeah, he, as soon as they take a video camera there, Mean Gene is. Mike Tanay talks about DDP being the people's champion and working for everything he's achieved. Bobby Heenan says a lot of wrestlers have tried to copy the diamond cutter, but nobody can apply it as quickly or from as many different positions as Paige can. Tony Schiavone puts over the crippler crossface as being another killer hold and the difference maker for Benoit. The pair don't shake hands prior to the bout, but they do slap hands, which the announcers say is not a sign of friendship, but of respect. I quite like that because they're yeah. setting this up as babyface versus babyface. There isn't a burning issue. You know, DDP's kind of the people's champion. Like, I could see why he would do that. Yeah. Benoit's not affiliated with anyone at the minute. No, the horsemen are kind of done these days. They lock up and Benoit rings Paige's arm. Paige reverses it and rams his shoulder into Benoit's. Benoit reverses with a cartwheel before Paige reverses, trips Benoit and gets a one count. Nice sequence. Mm. Benoit applies a headlock, but Paige reverses. Benoit shoots him off and hits an arm drag. Paige smiles, realising he was outsmarted. They lock up again, but Paige goes to forearms and backs Benoit into the corner. Paige hits a nice gut wrench into a stomach breaker. I really like that. It looked like he was going for a powerbomb, but then he switches it up mid-move and kind of mm. drops him on his knee, on his stomach. Yeah. You, it's one of those differences, isn't it? Like it's, you don't see that. It's, so he's taken two moves and kind of just mashed them together. I know, I really like that. That's good. Benoit blocks a suplex and lifts Paige up, dropping him stomach first over the rope. Paige blocks a suplex, but Benoit takes him down and goes for the crossface, but Paige makes the ropes and bails to the outside. 
Mike Tenay, talks about how Page tapes every single one of his matches and goes over them to spot where he makes mistakes and improve and says that Page ordered a best of Chris Benoit tape to prepare for this match. It's dedication. It must cost him at least twelve ninety nine. Oh, see, I, th- I thought he said he, he ordered a best of Diamond Dallas Page DVD. Why would he order a best of himself? Because he really wants to watch it. I don't know. <laughs> I, I really like little details like that, and it actually reminded me of watching King of Trios actually recently. I I think it's on night one in the British Strong Style White Wolf match where they talk about the White Wolf guys having like tons of footage to watch of eight yeah. done and seven but yeah. conversely they haven't got the same so they're able to surprise them a bit more ah, that's good like, yeah good little detail back in the ring and we get a test of strength which page wins but benoit's incredible leg and back strength allows him to bridge backwards and keep a hold of page's knuckles benoit then hooks page's legs and brings him down for a pinfall attempt which page reverses before benoit reverses for a final two of his own like a really excellent little struggle sequence there mm. Very, very nice. Benoit's spine was quite impressively flexible there, wasn't it? Yeah, like th- that that kind of test of strength and then the way he sort of brings Paige down is quite incredible. The crowd are pretty good for this, right? There's a reasonable amount of interaction with it. Yeah, I mean, DDP's still a super popular guy. Yeah, and but Benoit maintained a level of popularity while he's been in the in the company. Yeah, I think at this point people just kind of respect him. I definitely think the affiliation with the Horseman helped. And, and you know, he's, he's had good matches with through the Kevin Sullivan feud and through the Raven feud. So people are interested in what he's mm. doing. Benoit ducks a Page clothesline attempt and hits strong chops to the chest of DDP. Page gets a knee and sends Benoit stomach first into the corner. Page hits a back suplex and looks for the diamond cutter, but Benoit shoves him away and bails to the outside. Referee Charles Robinson warns Benoit of the count, so Benoit rolls in for a second, then out again to buy himself more time. Sneaky. Tanay says it's strange to see this from Benoit, suggesting he's surprised by Page's game plan. When Benoit gets back inside, they go nose to nose before hitting big slaps to each other and brawling on the mat. Tony Schiavone suggests this is because Page didn't appreciate Benoit wasting time on the outside. As Charles Robinson tries to break the pair up, Benoit decks Page. A great sequence sees Page duck down to monkey flip Benoit, but Benoit holds Page's legs up for a pin. Page reverses it and does the same, before wheelbarrowing Benoit for a suplex, which gets a two count. That was cool. Yeah. A lot of wheelbarrow moves. Yeah, I've got to say, that was pretty, pretty slick. Benoit goes to the knee of Page with a dropkick, which Page sells. Benoit hits a clothesline and stomps on Page's head before sending him into the corner. Benoit applies a chin lock, where he also grabs the wrist of Page. Tanay suggests this is a good move to prepare for the crossface. The crowd rallies for DDP. As they get up out of the hold, Page dropping Benoit with a jawbreaker for a pop. Mm, it's good, that. Benoit is up first, though, and mauls Page in the corner with chops and kicks. Page pulls himself to his feet and fights back with punches of his own, before Benoit hits a snap suplex for a two. Benoit goes back to the wrist-slash-chin-lock, again bringing Page down to the mat. Page once again makes it to his feet and rolls Benoit out of the hold. Benoit goes for a straight chin-lock, but DDP elbows his way out of it. He looks to back-suplex Benoit, but Benoit rolls through, lands on his feet and again applies the chin-lock. Page elbows Benoit in the gut again and grabs Benoit, twisting him over, out of the hold and out of the ring in a suplex-type fashion, which gets a reaction from the crowd. So he like kind of tumbles out of the ring. Mm. Yeah. But is this, is this not one of these other points where it might contradict the top root rule? 
It may well do. Benoit is tenacious, though, straight back to his feet and looks to get back into the ring via the top turnbuckle, but Page knocks the ropes and crotches Benoit. Page hits a superplex, which causes the referee to count both men down. When they get back to their feet, they exchange fists before Page hits a tornado clothesline for a two. Benoit shoves Page to the outside, but Page quickly goes to the top rope and hits a clothesline for another two. Benoit manages to apply the crossface, but Page's foot is on the ropes. Benoit looks for a superplex, but Page rolls Benoit up for a two count before Benoit reverses for a two of his own. Benoit hits a massive chop, which gets a pop before Page hits a belly-to-belly suplex for a two. Page goes for a German suplex, but Benoit switches and hits one of his own, followed by another, and another, which pops the crowd and Tony Schiavone massively and gets Benoit a two count. Is this a new thing you started doing? Yeah, this is my next note. Clearly, this isn't a standard part of his repertoire at the town because they really, really like pop for it. And Tony Schiavone seems like massively impressed with it. Yeah, which is by the time he gets up to WWF, that's already in his routine, isn't it? Yeah, that's like a regular part of his arsenal. Mm. The crowd even boo the kick out from Page as well. Like, that's how impressed they are with that sequence. It was a really irritating move in SmackDown, too. Yeah, because it took ages. Because it just took ages to do. Benoit looks for a hip toss, but DDP reverses it into a DDT for a two count. DDT looks slightly strange. I think Page's offence always generally looks not strange, but like different to most other people's. Mm. He's got a certain style about it. I don't want to use the word clunky, but... I use the word awkward. But yeah, it's not quite as, it's not quite as smooth, but it doesn't look like he's, he's doing things wrong. But, it's just a different method of doing things. I like the fact that DDP was doing a DDT. Yes, I also like that. The DDP DDT. Yeah, Mm. I think it's got a link to it. Page signals it's time for the diamond cutter, but Benoit reverses and they hook their arms back to back, jockeying for position. Benoit manages to roll backwards over Page, but he rolls right into a diamond cutter, which gets Page the three and the win at 15.46 to a pop. Page celebrates in the crowd after his win. Good ending. Still no one's kicking out the diamond cutter. And so they shouldn't be. No, but yeah, good performances from both. Like The crowd was pretty into it. Some good spots, some good moves in there. Good yeah, match. Pretty strong, really, yeah. I thought this was a bloody great match. Like Nothing spectacular or epic, but just really, really well executed. It's babyface versus babyface. So I'm not quite sure the crowd know in places how to react. But as far as two guys just trying to prove who the better wrestler is with no real grudge between them, like this is probably as good as you're going to get. I think Benoit loses absolutely nothing in defeat as he goes toe-to-toe with Page, a man that WCW have made a big deal out over the last year or so. Page, I think, actually gains the most here, winning a wrestling match over Benoit, proving he can kind of hang with someone Mm. the calibre of wrestler as Benoit is. The announcers also focused on this one, which it absolutely deserved, and I'd happily watch more matches between Benoit and Page off the back of this one. Yeah, I absolutely recommend checking this one out. I, I think this is really strong. The announcers tell us that it turns out the giant won't be here tonight as his flight is late. I feel like I've been stiffed on that one a bit. Mm. I was expecting the Giants. It's why I've paid my money. We then see a video package which shows us Kevin Nash dropping the Giant on his head. But I probably won't include it here as it's literally just ominous music with no dialogue, so there'd be little (laughs) point. It does feature an excellent chokeslam by the Giant on Bischoff, though. Why have they got it? Because it's like, he's not here. This is highlights of last time. This is what you could have seen. 
Well, had you seen this before, the clip of Nash dropping the giant on his head? Yeah, so does it about kill him? Yeah, it, it doesn't <laughs> look very nice, does it? I can't understand why it was done. Because Kevin Nash said, I want to powerbomb the giant. And why the giant just said, mate, you're never going to powerbomb me. I weigh 500 pounds. Allegedly. Allegedly. Allegedly well I'm, over 500 pounds. I, I, I know you can powerbomb Eric Bischoff. But I know you can I, do Ray. I'm literally five of him. You can't do that. And lo and behold, he can't. Because it looks from the what happens is the giant tries to do the right thing. He flips his legs to try and get the momentum so mm. that you can actually pick him up. And Nash just says, oh, fucking hell, he's heavy. And just drops him on his head. <laughs> it is a bit like it doesn't bother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Two thirds of the way through the power bomb, he thinks, nah. He's like, oh, fuck this. He's well heavy. Mm. It's not allegedly 500 pounds. He actually is 500 pounds. And we'll get into the fallout from this shortly. Up next is Lex Luger versus the macho man Randy Savage in a no-disqualification match. In a rather fetching Basque. After their 16-minute thriller at Starcade, Lex Luger wrapped up his feud and got his big win over Buff Bagwell on this December 29th <laughs> episode of Nitro, after which he claimed that Macho Man Randy Savage was next on his hit list. Well, that's brought back horrible memories of Lex Luger versus Buff Bagwell. Yeah, that was fucking Thanks terrible. Thanks very much. There's nothing on this show as bad as that. The January 5th, 1998 episode of the show would open with the NWO arriving in separate limos. Hollywood Hogan and Eric Bischoff in one, Macho Man Randy Savage and Scott Hall in another, with the commentary team throughout the evening pushing a dissension in the NWO angle that Bischoff was keen to downplay in an interview midway through the broadcast. The main event would see Luger and Savage against one another, with Luger picking up the clean win via inside cradle in under five minutes. Hmm. Savage would freak out after the match, attacking Luger, and when Eric Bischoff ran to the ring, presumably to calm the macho man down, Savage accidentally decked him, Savage assuming it was someone attempting to attack him from behind, which in WCW is a fair assumption. Hollywood Hogan then ran down to confront Savage, and when Savage slapped Hogan, Kevin Nash appeared for the first time in weeks, clotheslining Macho from behind. Hogan then tried to convince Savage that Luger and WCW were the enemy, as Sting ran down to stand by Luger against Hogan and Savage. Savage would participate in the opening bout of the inaugural episode of WCW Thunder on January 8th, when he was defeated by Chris Adams, after Lex Luger had whacked him in the head with a steel chair, mind you. Who's Chris Adams? Later in the broadcast, Wasn't JJ... footballer? That's Tony Adams, sorry. Defeated by Tony Adams in a shock revelation. <laughs> Later in the broadcast, J.J. Dillon would reverse the decision and award Savage the victory. Savage and Scott Hall would again arrive separately from the rest of the NWO at the beginning of the January 12th Nitro. Savage would attack Luger, following Lex's victory over Hugh Morris later in the show, as for some reason, Luger didn't see a crying Miss Elizabeth as a clear distraction for a Savage assault. The tag team main event of the January 15th Thunder pitting Macho and Big Sexy against Lex Luger and an injured Diamond Dallas Page, who never made it to the ring, would only exacerbate the problems between Savage and Nash, with Nash at one point opting to slap Savage in the face rather than tagging him in. Big Sexy? Yep, that's what Kevin Nash wants to be known as now. And he came up with this himself, did he? <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> Oh dear! But isn't it cringing when when people come up with nicknames? What's your, what's your nickname going to be, Kev? Hmm. Hang on, hang on. Say that again. Isn't it cringy when people come up with nicknames for themselves? <laughs> yeah. Yes, it is. 
big fella. Hollywood Hogan <laughs> would cause the disqualification with some post-match shenanigans between Nash Savage and Hogan Savage, causing more talk of a break in the NWO. Savage allowing the giant to choke slam Hogan probably didn't help either. Randy Savage would run in on Luger's match with Scott Hall on the January 19th episode of Nitro, causing the DQ loss for one of the few people in the NWO he seemed to be getting along with. The highest billed singles match that sold out on January 24th would be a singles match between Luger and Savage, though I swear WCW never once mentioned that it was happening on television prior to the pay-per-view. Naturally, towards the end of the bout, Scott Hall and Hulk Hogan made an appearance, with Savage accidentally colliding with Hall, causing him to rebound into the torture rack that gave Luger the win. As ever, the event would end up with a big WCW-NWO brawl. On the January 26th Nitro, an enraged Savage interrupted a bout between Scott Hall's lackey Louis Spicoli and Juventud Guerrera, nailing Hoovy with a pile driver and whacking Spicoli in the face. Savage grabbed a mic and demanded Lex Luger come to the ring, insisting that the NWO's interference was the only reason he had lost at sold out. Instead of Luger, the rest of the NWO made their way out. After Savage called the group a bunch of clowns and told Hollywood Hogan that he made him sick, Eric Bischoff insisted that cooler heads should prevail. Hogan then told Savage that whilst they were in it together, the only reason he and Hall had come to the ring it sold out was because Savage wasn't doing so well against Flexi Lexi, feeling that their mere presence should have inspired Savage to overcome the devastating offence of Luger. The devastating offence of Luger? That might be my phrasing. Savage resented the accusation, telling the group he didn't need them interfering in his matches anymore and telling Hogan, to a big pop, that he didn't look so good without gold around his waist. Hogan wasn't pleased with this insult, launching into another tirade against Savage, which saw the macho man leave the ring to grab a steel chair whilst Bischoff held Hogan back. Savage closed the segment, saying that he would take care of Luger whilst Hogan needed to take care of Sting and get the gold back in the family. The main event of the January 26th Nitro would be Scott Hall once again taking on Lex Luger. It wouldn't take long for Luger to apply the torture rack to Hall, at which point the macho man legged it to the ring, whacked Luger with a chair for the DQ and tossed Scott Hall out of the ring. Thankfully for Luger, Sting would descend from the rafters to halt the assault by kicking Savage off the top rope on his way down. That was actually pretty cool. Sting would apply the Scorpion Deathlock to Savage to close the broadcast, while Savage's NWO allies Hall and Hollywood Hogan looked on. Mean Gene Oakland would interview Lex Luger, rocking the double denim look, on the February 2nd episode of Nitro regarding his no-disqualification match with Randy Savage at Super Brawl, though Lex had little of substance to say about it. Lex Luger in jeans and a denim jacket. Cut-off denim jacket. That's amazing. Did he look even more like MacGyver? The tensions between Randy Savage and the rest of the NWO reached a new height on the February 9th episode of Nitro when Hollywood Hogan challenged the Macho Man to a match in his show opening promo, a challenge that Savage from the crowd was keen to accept. Lex Luger would be less keen on the match in a promo later in the broadcast, claiming that he was sick of seeing Hogan and Savage arguing with each other and that the NWO members were overlooking himself and Sting. It would be Savage that picked up the win, via DQ of course, in the battle of the NWO's biggest players, when the NWO ran in after Savage dropped the big elbow on Hollywood. After the bell, the group beat the macho man down, allowing Hollywood to hit him with a pair of chair shots to the head. Savage didn't stay down for long though, attacking the NWO as they left the scene and then Lex Luger from behind, who came out after the commercial break to challenge the macho man. Sting would make the save for his long-time pal Luger. 
The NWO would appear not to help Savage, but to drop a big net on Sting and Luger for another gang attack. <laughs> what? You, you saw literal. this. Oh, yeah, Is that literally a big net? A giant comical net. Are you yep. kidding me? I'm not kidding you. It's really, really weird. Yeah, this is the thing that happens. <laughs> a Bischoff-Hogan promo would open the February 12th Thunder with Hogan teasing that he was going to apologise to Randy Savage, who he brought to the ring only to alter his position and demand that Savage apologise to him. Savage said he was sorry. Sorry that he didn't clock Hogan sooner, kicking off another brawl between the pair, which also put question marks over an upcoming tag bout on the February 16th Nitro, pitting the duo against Lex Luger and Sting. The broadcast would also end in the mandatory Luger-Savage-Hogan-Sting-related brawl following a Luger match against Ric Flair. Prior to the tag bout occurring on Nitro, Hogan would bring out the entire NWO minus Savage and celebrate the entire group being together again. Hogan would also demand once again that Savage apologise to him, something that Macho Man was not keen on, claiming he'd beat Luger and Sting by himself and then spit on Hogan. Naturally, the heavily hyped tag team bout would go less than five minutes and end in a DQ when the NWO ran in, with Ric Flair and Bret Hart coming to the aid of Sting and Luger to clear the ring. Randomly, the February 19th Thunder would open with Mike Tenay interviewing Chris Jericho in the parking lot. Of course, this would be a segue into a backstage NWO attack as the camera quickly chose to follow the group assaulting Lex Luger and Macho Man Randy Savage. This would lead to the announcers, Tony Schiavone in particular, becoming dangerously obsessed with the idea that Luger and Savage were having a conversation prior to the NWO's attack. Were they having a conversation? What were they saying? How long were they talking for? All questions that were repeated ad nauseum throughout the broadcast, especially following an injured Luger refusing to be interviewed by Mike Tanay in the trainer's room, which was apparently suspicious as, according to Lee Marshall, Luger and Tanay were such good friends. Also hyped throughout the broadcast was the main event of Randy Savage vs Sting, so of course WCW didn't deliver it. When the time came for the bout, the NWO carried Savage to the ring like some sort of Sting-masked Jesus and left him in the ring. Hollywood Hogan then cut a promo saying that Savage had kindly left Sting for Hogan to take care of at Super Brawl. Sting would then make an appearance, falling victim to the numbers of the NWO, before Lex Luger made the save while Savage remained knocked out on the canvas. That's a lot has been going on with the Macho Man. Yeah. An awful lot. Although it's all fairly NWO related, got to be honest, I'm quite interested. Like, I, you know, I think one of the criticisms of us in general is that we've been fairly critical of the NWO. But do you know what? This is quite interesting. Fair enough, a bit, bit different. Yeah. It's, it's less, like, the NWO stuff seems to be they kind of swagger around using their numbers just to beat people up. But this is something slightly different where you've got this character that's kind of moving between groups and who's he with and who's trying to stab him in the back and who's he potentially stabbing in the back and so it's all a lot more complex and a lot more intriguing and in all honesty like in early 1998 i gather this will alter as the year goes on but in the first couple of months like they've really cut down on the amount of like nwo promos so like you don't just get those like 20 minute segments of bischoff and hogan like verbally fellating each other like every single episode of Nitro, that doesn't exist anymore. When they do appear, it's generally for kind of a storyline reason, certainly related to Hogan and Savage. And they seem to be putting a lot of their eggs in that basket that people will be interested in a falling out between the pair. And and to be honest, it is relatively interesting. 
Yeah, I mean, it's good that they've dropped a lot of those segments from it because they could get... Well, they were long, weren't they? And they could become tedious, and I almost wonder if that dreadful NWO Nitro segment was enough to make them think, at least temporarily, hang on, we need to pull back on this a little bit. Yeah. like, And it's weird because Nitro's gone to full three hours every week, so you would think almost that they'd just do more of it. It's like people like the NWO. What, what does that tell you? Let's make some more of it. Mm. Well, we, actually, we looked at the Wikipedia page earlier. I don't know if you've ever seen it. List of NWO members. Mm. There's 62 across all different incarnations of wow. it. That is a big faction. That is a big faction. It includes... Who's the least likely member? Virgil. Dusty Rhodes. <laughs> Sean oh, yeah. Michaels. Booker T. Dennis oh, Rodman. Oh, yeah, you, you can't really count Shawn Michaels, though, can you? Dennis Rodman. Yeah, well, it goes through every single incarnation, yeah, including yeah, yeah. the WWF version of it. But I'd say they're kind of reasonably separate things, aren't they? It's still a faction called the NWO, and he's still in it. Well, we could say we're a faction called the NWO, but... <laughs> but we're not. But we're not. But we're not. <laughs> Maybe someone wants to edit the Wikipedia page to include us <laughs> yeah. now. Just lob us down there. No one will notice. The NWO music hits for the first time this evening... One hour and 45 minutes into the show, I might add. That's wow. relatively pleasant. It brings us Macho Man Randy Savage and Elizabeth to a big pop. Fuck me, dude. Savage what? looks around as he makes his entrance, lest he be attacked by his former NWO allies. Bobby Heenan talks about how Savage had to be a wrestler. He was too dangerous for any other sport and can't be controlled. He says Randy Savage is wrestling. I really liked that. Mm. For some reason, the Steiner Brothers music hits for a second before Lex Luger enters to mostly booze. <laughs> I've never seen someone look less interested to be walking to the ring for a major pay-per-view match as Luger looks here. He kind of looks positively bored with his own entrance. But also some random pyro, isn't it? It's almost like the pyro goes off significantly after it was supposed to. <laughs> and he's wearing so much strapping, it kind of looks like a corset. Mm-hmm. Yeah, his ribs are taped from a recent attack by the New World Order. We get a long shot of Lodi holding up a sign that says, Benoit, we knew you'd lose, behind Lex as he gets into the ring. Savage attacks Luger as he enters, but Luger takes the early advantage. Luger goes for a gorilla press, but his ribs can't handle it. How stupid is Lex Luger? Mm. Like, my ribs are really, really injured. What's the first move I'm going to try? A gorilla press. He's never come across as the thinking man's wrestler. That that so should have been a latter gimmick for him. <laughs> but this is this is quite surreal, I think, because they point out on commentary that he can't do it, so he won't be able to do the torture rack. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> the crowd chant Luger sucks as Macho Man works over Lex's ribs. Is this just because they're in this town, or has Luger lost a lot of that traction and popularity that he somehow had purchased from somewhere <laughs> from some sort of deal with the devil yeah i think it's a predominantly wwf town in the sense that like they react for say martel in the opener and you could put that down to him being in the opener but they're keen on generally it seems people who are former wwf stars but he was the narcissist man he was top of the company exactly and, but randy savage was a far bigger star he never had his own bus Savage throws Luger to the outside and follows, dropping Lex throat first over. The guardrail. As Savage wails away on Luger, Heenan suggests that Savage seems distracted, pacing around. Savage rolls Luger back inside and covers for a two. Heenan suggests Luger is either an idiot for getting in the ring with Savage in this state, or that he has more intestinal fortitude than any athlete ever. Tony asks him which one he thinks it is. 
Heenan says, it's a bit of both. <laughs> Savage gets another two after kicking Lex's ribs once more. Savage goes for a scoop slam, but Luger gets an inside cradle for a two of his own. Savage once again throws Luger to the outside, where he continues the assault. Savage even throws Luger into the crowd, hitting the back of Luger's ribs with a steel chair. Eventually, Lex makes a brief comeback when Savage tries to shove him face first into... Is it, is it the guardrail? But Savage quickly gets back on top. Back in the ring, Savage hits a suplex, but Luger gets right back to his feet. Luger fires back with a power slam, to mostly booze, before lifting Savage up for the torture rack. Elizabeth gets in the ring and rakes Luger's eyes to an absolute mega pop. Well, we know the real star in this match is. Well, I was, I was surprised that it could do the torture rack. What with the ribs and back and all. The NWOB team run to the ring, where Luger and Savage fight them off. The referee appears to ring the bell for a disqualification in the no disqualification match. But then, even though the camera doesn't really show it, because Hulk Hogan is coming to the ring, Luger lifts Savage up in the torture rack and gets the win to booze at 7.26. Deeply confusing ending to the match. There's a run-in. It's a DQ finish. The ref calls for it. The bell is rung. But it's a no DQ match. Yeah, it was weird, wasn't it? Yeah, what was the what was this supposed to achieve? I guess it was just to just build further friction between Savage and the NWO. Like they're the reason he loses the match. I guess they probably shouldn't have rung the bell when those guys run down. But if they just want to beat him up, why don't they just do it at the start of the match? Yeah, why make us go through the opening four minutes or whatever it is? For me, this was the first outright dud of the show. It didn't really feel wild enough to be a no-DQ match, especially given the wars like Savage and Diamond Dallas Page had in 1997. The majority of the match saw Lex Luger selling, which, as we all know, is not exactly his strength. So the first dud, you, you don't count the Bulldog match as a dud? Well, no, because I didn't expect anything from that. This is a Lex Luger match, mate. It's a Randy Savage match. Fair enough. Is this another one of those broom analogies? <laughs> Possibly. It was interesting to hear the reaction to Lex. I thought he was fallen quite far since we saw him win the WCW title from Hulk Hogan back in August 97. I don't think that one-week title reign did him any favours. No. And I, I do wonder if that's what's really killed his momentum. And, yeah, is it a shame? No, I wouldn't necessarily say it was a shame. <laughs> like, I'm not bitterly upset that his traction's been broken, but, like, he, he was abnormally and inordinately popular in WCW, and I don't think it's something we've ever understood. Yeah. Because um, I guess we weren't watching WCW at the time. But well, like, when you've been watching it, and, you know, I come in and Luger comes out, and the whole place erupts. And you can't, for the life of me, work out why. This isn't a guy that's got a track record for having stunning matches or cutting stunning promos. So, but he, he just must have had something from a time before. I guess for the most part, like, he looks like a star and looks like a wrestler. Like, if you were in the late 80s to say, like, draw me a wrestler, he would be a big, muscly guy with a mullet. and Draw me a big, muscly guy with a big guy of his face. <laughs> I guess, and Luger would fit that mould. And he's always generally, at least in WCW, presented in situations designed to make him look like a star. So mm. I guess the, the audience just kind of bought it. But yeah, he doesn't have a track record of great matches or great promos or anything like that. But I do think, yeah, that little flirt with the title did him more harm than good. Does he do much else now, Luger? This this is the last time we're coming to WCW, right? Yes. He said that last time. Does he have another run near the top? Or is, yeah. this, is, this, is this kind of it now? Luger is 
floating underneath that? Yeah, he's always near the top of the card. I don't think he's champion again, but he's never like bottom of the card. He doesn't fall completely, you know, into opening match territory. And is is, is he? There? He's not there at the end, is he? Yeah, he's there all the way to the really? end. But Vince didn't want to pick him up again. No. <laughs> After that time, he came out in that shopping mall. Up next is the Steiner brothers versus the Outsiders for the WCW Tag Team titles. And those other titles. Although they didn't face the trio of NWO members they expected to at Starcade, the Steiner brothers and Ray Trailer would take on the scheduled trio of Conan, Scott Norton and Vincent on the January 5th episode of Nitro. The WCW trio would pick up the win, mostly thanks to the efforts of Scott Steiner, who hit the Steiner screwdriver to pin Conan. Worth noting, though, was that when Scott had Conan in position for the brothers' trademark top-rope bulldog, he chose to electric chair Conan to the mat rather than moving him in position for Rick. Similarly, a couple of nights later on the January 8th Thunder, Scott would choose to perform a Frankensteiner on Conan to win the brothers' bout against Conan and Buff Bagwell rather than placing Conan in position for the top-rope bulldog again. The main event of the January 12th Nitro would see the Steiner brothers defend their WCW Tag Team Championships against the Outsiders, Scott Hall and Kevin Nash. The match was filled with shenanigans aplenty and ended with Nash pinning Rick to capture the straps after Randy Savage accidentally hit Rick with an elbow drop. Savage acted all mad after the bout because of reasons we've already discussed. Mm. In a bit of a strange one, Scott Steiner failed to appear for a tag team bout on the January 17th WCW Saturday night, with Rick Steiner opting to go it alone against Scott Norton and Vincent. Rick would pick up the win in the impromptu handicap match, with Scott appearing after the decision to help his brother clear the ring. Dissension would again be played up between the brothers on the January 19th Nitro, when Scott worked their entire tag team match against Buff Bagwell and Conan without tagging Rick in once. Rick should probably have been grateful, though, as Scott once again picked up the win after hitting Conan with a variant of the Steiner screwdriver. Both Rick and the brothers' manager, Ted DiBiase, queried with Scott what the hell he was playing at after the bell, but Scotty was more interested in having a pose-off with Buff Bagwell and left the ring alone. Classic. At sold out on January 24th, the Steiners and Ray Trailer once again took on the NWOB team of Conan, Bagwell and Norton. Rick Steiner and Trailer argued with Scott Steiner prior to the bout beginning, angry at Scott's recent spotlight hogging, though again, he's been winning all their matches, so I'm not sure I really see the problem. Mm. The pair went so far as to not tag Scott in as the contest went on, though it would eventually be Scott that picked up the win with yet another screwdriver to Conan. Scott and Bagwell would have another pose down after the bell, much to the chagrin of Rick and DiBiase. Rick Steiner would face off with Buff Bagwell in singles action on the January 26th Nitro. When Bagwell's pal Vincent tripped Rick, Scott Steiner made his way to the ring to kick the NWO lackey's ass. Unfortunately, this involved press-slamming Vincent into the ring, just as Rick had Bagwell pinned following a bulldog, causing the DQ loss for the elder Steiner. After the bell, Rick, DiBiase and referee Mickey J, whom Scott shoved, all queried what the hell he thought he was doing. Scott's response? Screw you. I hate referees, they're incompetent and stupid. Scott posing at Bagwell would stop Rick from making the tag when the Steiners faced off against Kevin Nash and Conan on the January 29th Thunder, though they would pick up the win via DQ shortly afterwards. In response, Scott would refuse to tag Rick in during their tag match against Nash and Buff Bagwell on the February 2nd Nitro. As usual, Scott would pick up the win anyway. Rick would be angrier than ever at his brother after the decision. 
Tensions would escalate even further on the February 5th Thunder when Scott Hall pushed Rick Steiner off the top rope in the Steiner's weekly bout with Conan and Buff Bagwell where he crashed into Scott and the two brothers yet again argued after the match. Prior to the evening's main event, announcers Tony Schiavone, Bobby Heenan and Lee Marshall would reveal that a World Tag Team title match had been signed for the February 9th Nitro pitting the Outsiders against the Steiner brothers leading to speculation that Rick and Scott must have patched things up and now be on the same page, though a video package early on in the Nitro where they were challenged for the straps played up dissension between the pair. When the time came for the bout, again Scott Steiner would be reluctant to make any kind of tag to his brother. Late in the bout though, Scott Hall knocked Scott into Rick, technically constituting a tag, which allowed Rick, now the legal man, to hit a bulldog and prevent Hall from hitting the outsider's edge. Rick Steiner then pinned Hall to capture the Steiners their 7th WCW Tag Team titles, though Scott Steiner at first seemed unhappy he hadn't been the one to grab the glory, though would hug his brother to end the broadcast. A rematch between the teams for Super Brawl would quickly be announced on the February 12th Thunder, superseding a previously announced singles match between Scott Steiner and Buff Bagwell. After a Steiner's hype video played on the February 16th Nitro, the Outsiders would approach the announce desk, insisting that they didn't want to wait until Super Brawl for their rematch. They wanted it that night. Kevin Nash had no particular reason as to why they couldn't wait six days. They were just impatient. This didn't particularly go anywhere, as less than 20 minutes later, Hall and Nash took on the public enemy, and later in the show, the Steiners had yet another bout with Buff Bagwell and Scott Norton, featuring more cooperation between Rick and Scott than had been seen in months though it would end in a DQ when the rest of the lower tier of the NWO and Scott Hall ran in. Kevin Nash never ran anywhere, explaining his absence. Mm-hmm. Anyway, Scott Steiner would clear the ring with a chair. If you hadn't guessed, the Steiner brothers just take on a combination of, like, Conan, Buff Bagwell and Scott Norton every single fucking week. Mm. Yeah, I kind of got that feeling. Lots of Buff Bagwell. Yeah, too much Buff Bagwell. I should probably also mention that, yes, the powerbomb has been banned in WCW following Kevin Nash's attempt at a jackknife on the giant that sold out on January 24th, which, as you've seen, ended badly. Didn't it nearly hurt his back as well? Yeah, I think it hurt Nash's back and the giant's neck. And I guess the giant is legit injured, is he? Yes. So that that's that's the thing then, isn't it? Is I'm lifting him up, all my back, I'll drop him on his head. On the ensuing January 26th episode of Nitro, J.J. Dillon would formally announce the ban to Big Heat, I might add, along with a substantial fine to anyone who executed the jackknife powerbomb or any variant of it. Any variant of the jackknife powerbomb, so that's any powerbomb. Correct. Dillon also addressed Nash directly, telling him that if he ever attempted the move again, he would be fined, escorted out of the building, and WCW would explore the possibility of criminal prosecution. Naturally, in an angle later in the show, Nash, who was cheered heavily, ignored Dylan's decree, instead claiming, like the film Old Yeller, he'd just been trying to put the giant out of his misery, and that from now on, he wished to be known as Big Sexy, the Giant Killer. The Big Sexy Giant Killer. Later in the broadcast, Kevin Nash would take on Ray Trailer in an epic bout that featured Nash throwing hot coffee in Trailer's face, hitting him in the balls, and then hitting a powerbomb for the DQ. Hot coffee? That was the entire match. Really? Nash was then escorted out of the arena handcuffed. JJ Dillon would respond on the January 29th Thunder, announcing that Nash had been fined $50,000 for his powerbomb to Trailer. Nash would once again prove how seriously he was taking this situation later in the broadcast by powerbombing referee Charles Robinson and once again being removed from the building in handcuffs. 
due to Nash's actions, Tony Schiavone would reveal on the February 2nd Nitro that the fine for executing a powerbomb had now been raised to an unprecedented $150,000. Clearly nobody told Nash or Hulk Hogan of the storyline amendment as both men referred to the original fine in interviews later on in the broadcast, with Nash bitching about other wrestlers using variations of the powerbomb, which according to the Wrestling Observer is pretty much the reason for the whole angle in the first place. Nash didn't like other wrestlers, cruiserweights especially, using power bombs, so used the giant incident to get it banned, only to continue doing it himself. Whoa! What a prick. Not wanting to contradict anything the Hulkster said, the announcers went back to talking about the fine being the original $50,000 by the end of the broadcast. Nash would hit another powerbomb the following week on the February 16th Nitro, in the outsider's previously mentioned bout with the public enemy. This one saw him toss Rocco Rock to the outside of the ring, where Johnny Grunge was laid out on a table. Because he's so cool, Nash then did a Hannibal Lecter impression directly into the camera, and once again shouted, Attica, Attica, as he was led away in handcuffs. What? Google it. The NWO theme hits once again, this time to bring us Kevin Nash and Scott Hall, the Outsiders, along with Dusty Rhodes. I should mention his heel turn has been pretty much a flop. He cut a promo on the Thunder after he turned heel that was so long and rambly-like, Scott Hall had to take the microphone off of him. What? Yeah. Hey, yo! You know what time it is? Survey time! So is everybody here in San Francisco to see WCW? Or, or is everybody here in San Francisco to see them? Says one more for the good guy. Yeah, that survey at 50 cents will get you a cup of coffee. Hall conducts his now standard survey of who the crowd have come to see. In this instance, as the last bout demonstrated, the audience are very much here to see the NWO. For the record, I fucking hate this because no matter what reaction they get, Hall always claims one more for the good guys. Is it pretty over, though? It is over, so... So you can understand why it's being yeah, done. but I almost wish just the weeks where they're clearly there to see WCW, he should just make some smart-ass comment rather than just going, oh, yeah, we won again. Like, 7-3. <laughs> WCW Tag Team Champions, the Steiner Brothers, are out next, accompanied by Ted DiBiase. We've talked about the Steiner's theme before, but I wanted to query one of the lyrics. Have you ever read them? No. So the build to the chorus goes... There won't be any questions when you get Steinerized. Well, I happen to think if I were Steinerized, I'd have a whole bunch of questions like, why does everything hurt? Why can't I feel my legs? Why have and I been Steinerized? Why have I been Steinerized? <laughs> yeah, exactly. My main question would be, what is being Steinerized? Dropped on your head via some sort of <laughs> suplex type thing, I imagine. Horrific work accident. The crowd here may be very pro-NWO, but everybody loves barking along with Rick Steiner. Mm. Yeah. Scott shows off his magnificent biceps as he makes it to the ring. 
Bobby Heenan draws attention to Ted DiBiase, discussing tactics with Rick, but Scott walking away as this happens. Big NWO chances we open with Scott Hall and Rick Steiner. Hall throws his toothpick at Rick, so Rick decks him in the face. Fair enough, isn't it, really? Hall goes for a shoulder block, but Rick Steiner doesn't budge. Rick hits a Steiner line and a big belly-to-belly suplex before going for ten punches in the corner. Hall keeps shoving him off, but Rick is relentless. Dazed, Hall stumbles out of the corner into an absolute whopper of an overhead belly-to-belly suplex by Rick. Yeah, how heavy is Scott Hall? And tall. Yeah, he's a big, big bloke. He's a big fella. And and arguably, at this point, Rick is the, the, the less strong of the Steiners. But can still do this. But with, can still just lob giant people around. With relative ease. Yeah. Kevin Nash enters, but Rick quickly dispatches him, clotheslining Big Sexy to the outside. <laughs> Stop calling him Big Sexy. There we you. don't want to validate that. <laughs> That's what he says he wants to be called. As Rick barks, and the crowd barks along with him, Scott Steiner enters the ring, and the brothers go for their trademark pose of Scott standing over Rick. Yep, yep, I can see good things happening here. Until Scott axe handles and beats down the back of his older brother to a big reaction. What a bastard. What did you make to it? I quite liked it. Because did you not think, though, that the move should have been something grander and more vicious than than a, an axe handle? I don't know, probably hard to pull a move on someone that's crouched between your legs. <laughs> yeah, but I'm sure they could have worked in a way, like they could have just gone up and he could have suplexed him or something like, like a, I was just saying, like, if you're going to do a heel turn, like, not got a problem with doing the heel turn. Seems like, you know, being building it nicely. Make it something a little bit punchier. Well, he does then do an underhook suplex and batters Ted DiBiase off the apron, which then causes Dusty Rose to shove DiBiase into the ring post. My, my biggest question with this is, why isn't this the end of it? Well, Scott two sweets Hall and Nash before heading back to the apron. Hall covers Rick, but Rick kicks out at two. <laughs> I can see where your confusion has come from with this. Is he supposed to kick out or is he just having a laugh? No, I think he is supposed to kick out. I just think this is the way it's booked. Okay. Hall and Nash batter Rick, but Rick fights back, drawing him a big response from the crowd. But Kevin Nash eventually gets a club to the back of Rick's head. Scott Hall tries to lift Rick up for the outsider's edge, but can't bring him over. He manages it on the second attempt, hits the move, and covers Rick for the three at 4.16, giving the outsiders the tag team titles once again, which Scott Steiner hands them after the bell, before throwing referee Scott Dickinson to the outside. Scott celebrates with the outsiders and Dusty Rhodes before the group leave the ring. Short match. Yeah, really short. I think Paul wants a two-sweet. Isn't, isn't this topical at the minute? Well, you might get a cease and desist letter from the WWE. Yeah. Hang on, what? Have you, have you not read about this? Are they filing something against the Young Books? Yeah, what, what a really? good guess, yeah. <laughs> but it's quite a funny comment earlier, actually, I was reading on Twitter where, so they've sent them the cease and desist letter, so they're not allowed to say suck it anymore, they're not allowed to use the too sweet hand gesture, so the Young Books have just marketed a cease and desist t-shirt, t-shirt. which, <laughs> which is presumably selling in the hundreds of thousands right now. <laughs> But there was there was a comment from Meltzer saying something along the lines of, in two and a half years, WCW couldn't work out how to capitalise on cease and desist letters from the WWE. It took the Young Bucks less than 24 hours. Mm. What's the point? Well, there was also another story that kind of emerged this week, and I can't remember what company it is. I think it's Funko, the people who make the pop vinyls. Yeah. So they were 
visiting with WWE WrestleMania weekend or whatever company it is. And they were saying to them, wow, this Bullet Club merchandise that you've got, everybody's wearing it. It's really great. You must be making loads of money off of that, only to be told that's not our merchandise. Mm. So I think it may be one of those things where they finally clocked on and said, hmm, maybe we should do something about that. Mm. It, it proves they've gotten to a level where... They, they matter. Where they matter, yeah. yeah. It's kind of as, it's about as big a compliment that you could get from the WWE is stop doing that, we're going to take yeah. legal action against we, we you. We actually but, care about what you're doing. Yeah, we've, but... we've noticed. We didn't notice TNA for all those years. I, I don't know. Who's it hurting? Because... For me, is that really going to be costing WWE it's, any It's not money? about who it's hurting. It's about that they feel they own the legal trademark to and someone else gesture. is Someone else is making money out of it. Yeah. It's just the way, I guess, big business works. Can you trademark a gesture? Well, I guess we'll find out. <laughs> yeah, I wonder how that would hold up in court. Probably well, quite well for the, WWE. They've some, got loads of very lawyers. well-known gestures that people use all the time. Well, wasn't like there that, something yeah. between... That was Adam um, sticking his finger up at Paul. Yeah. Now Paul's then, doing the wanker hand sign now, back at him. Now Vince is going to send me a letter saying Stone Cold owns that <laughs> hand but, gesture. You can't use it. No, but he does it like that, doesn't he? But wasn't there something between Jay-Z and DDP over like the diamond cutter sign? I was think there? you're right. Yes, I do. Yeah, I think there was something to do with that as well. So maybe you can own a gesture. I'm going to create my own gesture. So anyway, Scott Stein has turned heel. What do you make to it? I'm a fan because I'm a fan of most things that Scott Steiner does. It's clearly a benefit to his like singles push. This is we, we've talked about him kind of looking a bit more popper pump type character. So I guess this is just another step, and I guess he's quite close to bleaching his hair. Yeah. Do, does it harm Rick to split? Well, see, I almost wonder if that's why he kicks out following the turn as if that's an attempt to go we're still going to kind of take you seriously as well so you don't get completely battered down Mm. and completely destroyed like you do make a little bit of a fight back but ultimately it's too much for you the numbers game is too yeah yeah so although rick obviously doesn't go on to kind of world champion level that scott does like he's still a fairly big deal going forward he feuds with chucky towards the end of the year start of 99 the doll the doll We'll have to revisit that. And he also tags with Judy Bagwell, so clearly he's a big deal. <laughs> but, yeah, I, you know, you can't really analyse this as a match. It's just an angle, isn't it? Yes. Like, okay, Rick, yeah, throws some pretty damn good suplexes, but the match is what, like about two and a half minutes before the Scott turn? The weirdest part is that Scott goes back to the apron as if he's there for a tag. Yeah. Which is, oh, yeah, I've, I've come in, I've hit my brother, I've done a move on him. Now I'll just go back to where I am, in, just in case he wants to tag me in. I would have quite liked to see him try and make the tag, just to see what happens. <laughs> when the end of the match comes and, and there is all the kind of two-sweeting gestures going on, I've got to say, I don't think the outsiders look too bothered about it. It's not like, wow, we've we've got this really big, brilliant new addition to our cool mm. faction. It yeah. is, we'll, we'll let you join. Yeah, it, you're right like, then. You can play with us now. It, it, it kind of really felt like that, and I think that doesn't really underscore it with any importance. I guess it's kind of also a weird time for him to do the turn when they've just won the tag team titles. It would almost make a bit more sense if they just lost them. This was their big rematch and they were going to go for them and then he turned on him. Mm. So you end with this weird scene where he's like, oh, here's my tag team title. Mm. But overall, I, I did quite like the angle. Yeah, I, I, I like I, the I angle. I don't see any any real problem with it. I thought, yeah, like maybe Rick does get enough offence in there to still look legitimate. I think it's going to move. It's the thing that needed doing 
in many ways with Scott. If you if you want him to change what he is, you have to separate him from from Rick. So is this as good a way as any of doing it? And they've certainly took their time with building it. Like, yeah, it's been a good couple of months coming. I've seen a couple of the matches. I I, I quite like the Scott Steiner. No, I'm not going to tag you. I'm just going to win this all by myself. Quite like that as a as a thing that's been going. It it, it darkens his character a lot. Before the main event, we get possibly the weirdest advert for a pay-per-view ever. Mm. It's for WCW Uncensored, and I don't really know how to describe it. Awful. (laughs) Apart from it features really weird music, a lot of shouting, and a lot of quick cuts. Hopefully you can explain it better than I have. That's it. I've put really silly advert narrated by the Daleks. (laughs) Yeah, that might be It's the best way that I can sum it up. It's time for our main event, Sting versus Hollywood Hulk Hogan for the vacant WCW world title. It's fair to say that the end of the Sting-Hogan WCW title match at Starcade 1997 didn't go entirely to plan and was somewhat confusing. Really? WCW didn't help the situation when on the following night's December 29th episode of Nitro, first hour announcers Tony Schiavone, Larry Zbysko and Mike Tanay acted like Nick Patrick had conducted the planned fast count and that Hogan had tapped out in Sting's Scorpion Deathlock, neither of which actually happened. It would be less than an hour into the show when an unhappy Hollywood Hogan and Eric Bischoff walked to the ring where they recapped their version of events. The crux of their argument being that Nick Patrick, the qualified referee handpicked by J.J. Dillon, had called for the bell following his pinfall. Therefore, as far as they were concerned, that was when the match was over, regardless of Bret Hart's actions. Dillon himself would appear later in the show, elated at the completely clean finish to the bout the night before. Dillon also revealed that Sting was in the building, and that if the NWO felt there was any trace of controversy in the finish of the match, then he would put the WCW title on the line that night. Dylan would appear again minutes later, quickly being interrupted by Eric Bischoff, who accepted Sting's challenge on behalf of Hogan. Any guesses as to whether the rematch had a nice squeaky clean finish? Unlikely. Well, in the short term we wouldn't know, as just under six minutes into the match, Nitro went off the air, just as Hogan (laughs) pulled referee Randy Anderson in front of him as Sting hit a stinger splash. The January 5th 1998 Wrestling Observer sums up the audience reaction. Quote, Naturally, there were more complaints about this the next day at Turner Broadcasting than anything WCW has ever pulled in its history, although that reaction was by design and not unexpected. End quote. You can understand fans' frustrations, as Nitro had set a precedent of following main events through to their conclusions, even going so far as to show the Hogan Giant title match in early 1997 during the commercial breaks of The Adventures of Robin Hood. You remember that? I remember that one, yes. Add to that the fact that the show went off the air at 10.04pm, the earliest in recent memory, and the fact that the only thing airing after Nitro was a replay of the same episode of Nitro. What? And you could certainly have a recipe for an angry audience. So you finish watching Nitro and then it just starts again? Yeah, and they went off the air because they were out of time to show their own replay. The following week's January 5th, 1998 episode of Nitro would see J.J. Dillon interviewed early in the show by Mean Gene Oakland. 
Dylan apologised for going off air the previous week, and when queried by Oakland as to who was WCW champion, Dylan said he thought it was Sting. Dylan also apologised for not having the footage of the finish to the bout, claiming that it was currently in the judges' chambers. What? Dylan then advised that the footage would be released within the next 24 hours, conveniently in time for the debut of WCW's new Thursday night show, Thunder, where Dylan said the footage would be shown, along with video from the finish of the match at Starcade. Uh, so it's a ploy to, in, to ensure a good viewership for the first episode of Thunder. Bingo. Smart. When aired, the footage showed Hogan pinning Sting after hitting him with brass knuckles, the pinfall being counted by Nick Patrick rather than the assigned referee Randy Anderson. The match then seemingly continued with Sting placing Hogan in the Scorpion and Randy Anderson calling for the bell. As soon as the bout finished, J.J. Dillon entered the ring to present the strap to Sting before Eric Bischoff arrived on the scene, kneed Dillon in the balls and grabbed the belt before Sting hit him with a Scorpion death drop. Confused? Yes. You should be. A huge brawl between NWO and WCW forces then erupted to end the footage. Mike Tenay then interviewed J.J. Dillon, who revealed that the WCW Executive Committee had decided to hold up the world title, irritating Hollywood Hogan and Sting, whom had been called to the ring, as well as, well, probably everyone watching. The fans' chants of bullshit were quietened by Sting, who spoke, telling J.J. Dillon, you've got no guts, and telling Hogan he was a dead man. Thrillingly, this would lead to lots of segments in the coming weeks, with Hogan and Bischoff bitching about lawyers and judges and how Hogan was the rightful champion. On the January 22nd episode of Thunder, it was announced that Hollywood Hogan and Sting had been invited to sold out as the WCW Executive Committee had decided upon a resolution for the world title situation, an invitation that Hogan and Bischoff felt was for Sting to present Hogan with the strap. Midway through the pay-per-view, Mean Gene Oakland interviewed J.J. Dillon, who welcomed back to WCW Rowdy Roddy Piper, the interim WCW commissioner who Dillon said was essential in putting the original Hogan Sting bout together and who had been away from the promotion since the NWO beatdown at the end of Halloween Havoc back in October 1997. Piper then invited Hogan and Sting to the ring, the former bringing Eric Bischoff and Scott Hall with him. Piper announced that Hogan and Sting would face off one more time at Super Brawl 8 on February 22nd to determine the undisputed WCW World Heavyweight Champion, and that Scott Hall, who had won World War III two months prior, would receive the first shot at whomever the champion turned out to be. Hogan naturally was appalled by this and insisted that Piper present him with the strap there and then, an outburst along with the revelation that it wouldn't be him getting the title shot at Super Brawl, that caused Hogan's NWA stablemate Hall to walk away from the ring, much to Hogan's chagrin. The man responsible for much of this mess, referee Nick Patrick, was absent from WCW television from the Hogan Sting rematch until the January 29th Thunder, where he was interviewed by Mike Tenay. He didn't have much of a defence for his actions at Starcade, merely telling the audience that Bret Hart wasn't a licensed official and that thanks to his lawyers, he would be back in the ring soon. He also campaigned that he should be the referee for Hogan Sting at Super Brawl, claiming that if WCW allowed him to do this, he would prove that he was for real and not for life, a sentiment he would back up a week later on the February 5th Thunder. Hogan and Bischoff were very much in favour of Patrick being appointed referee for the bout, demanding this in their promo on the February 2nd Nitro. Sting would also wrestle his first match in over a month on the same show, taking on the NWO's outlaw Randy Savage. Obviously Hulk Hogan would interfere in the bout, pulling Savage off a pinfall attempt on Sting, which somehow DQ'd Savage, 
which only escalated the issues between the two that we've discussed at length earlier in the episode and ended the show in confrontations between both Lex Luger and Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan and Sting. As promised in his February 5th Thunder promo, Nick Patrick would attempt to make his return to refereeing on the February 9th Nitro, though J.J. Dillon would have security escort him from the ring, a bitter Patrick advising Dillon that his lawyers would be contracting WCW shortly. They didn't work very quickly, apparently, as Patrick would appear the following week on Nitro being interviewed by Mean Gene Oakland, who advised him that he had been turned down from officiating another match on this night, leading to Patrick comparing himself to President Bill Clinton, another man suffering from defamation of character. Patrick painted himself as one lone man, standing up against a conspiracy by a large corporation, and accepted an offer made by Hollywood Hogan to provide him with, well, a better lawyer. If it sounds like WCW has put way more effort into the burgeoning issue between Hollywood Hogan and macho man Randy Savage than it has with any burning rivalry between Hogan and Sting, that's because they have. Hogan has also recently started planting seeds for a rivalry with Bret Hart in recent promos. You can look at it in one of two ways. It's either really good future planning, or because Hogan knows he's losing the match with Sting, he's not putting that much effort or time into hyping it. Mm. I'd be tempted to lean towards the latter. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Like, they often do in WCW kind of plan a couple of months in advance with regards to main events around this time. But, yeah, it would make sense that that's the reason Hogan's not focusing on this Sting bout, that he's much more concerned with his issues with Randy Savage, because ultimately that's a program he knows he's going to win. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame to say, but Hogan's actions really throughout almost the entire duration of this podcast, whenever we've seen him, his actions are always selfishly motivated. Michael Buffer has turned up, so it must be time for the main event. Fucking hell. Hollywood Hulk Hogan enters first, alone, not even Eric Bischoff at his side. Mm. Sting is out next, looking slightly less interested than Lex Luger did earlier. That is, until he legs it to the ring. I don't like Michael Buffer's introduction for Sting. In what way? In the way that it's all full of that, he is the you know the saving force of WCW, and he marches to the beat of his own drum and things like. Is that important? Well, he does it's a not, similar thing for Hogan. It, but it, it's not a film trailer. <laughs> You're Michael Buffer. Perhaps he's just reading the back of the box from the Crow. Maybe he is. Maybe he is. It really feels like they're not trying here, though. So the first time that these two faced off, we had these you know brilliant kind of arena kind of lighting, visuals, and this just comes out. (laughs) (laughs) Sting legs it to the ring, only to get whipped with a belt by Hogan to a big reaction. Hogan chokes Sting with his belt as assigned referee Charles Robinson tells Hogan to break. Hogan takes the time to put his belt back on. I quite liked that. Is it a no-DQ match? No. So he's lashing someone and then trying to choke them with a belt. Is that not a DQ? It's fine. Clearly not. If you put the belt back on, it's all right. Yeah, he, does, he spends a lot of time taking his belt off and put it back on this match. That, that happens about three times. Good in job this his match. tights don't fall down. Hogan punches Sting in the head and knocks him down to major heat before choking him on the mat. Hogan sucks chance from the crowd. Hogan rips Sting's coat off and continues to beat him down. Hogan throws Sting by the coat to the outside, where he continues his assault. As Sting sells in the aisle, Hogan poses in the ring before heading back to the outside to hit Sting with an atomic drop. Hogan whips Sting. Where, where's he? Do you want to take a guess? The guardrail. Which has taken an absolute battering on this show. Just smashed to smithereens. Back in the ring, 
Hogan holds Sting's hands for a test of strength that keeps Sting on his knees. Eventually, Sting powers to his feet, which gets a pop, so Hogan boots him in the gut. Hogan continues to kick Sting's ass for some time, with very little comeback from the supposed saviour of WCW. What do you make to Sting's outfit? I like the look. It's definitely a big change from what he used to look like, but yeah, I'm okay with it. It's a bit plain, I guess, but... See, I, I think it's really quite plain, and it's almost a cyclist that's off his bike. Because <laughs> it's quite tight, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I can see where you're coming from, actually, like, yeah. Because, you know what, cycling gear, while people are on the bikes, is fine. But as soon as a cyclist gets off their bike, it doesn't look so good. So you, what you're saying is you'd prefer it instead of from um, descending from the ceiling, you, um, Sting, Sting should come in on a mountain bike. Or a racing bike. Either's fine. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's just kind of like... And it is really plain, like... Yeah, it, I think eventually he jazzes it up with some Scorpion logos. Yeah, yeah. And it just... You know, it doesn't take a lot to make things look a little bit better. And that's all it would have taken, like a couple of like logo here, a little bit of writing there. But just to be completely plain makes it look really amateurish, I think. A sticker and some badges, maybe. Yeah. You should probably tweet him. Well, I'm sure he'll look back and think, oh my God, what was I wearing? I look like a cyclist. Off my bike. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I noticed in this is that Hogan's going around shouting out quite often, who's the man? Yeah. No, he's not the only person to do this. No. So I would say that you've really you've got Vader, Sid, Ric Flair, and now Hulk Hogan. Who of those four is the legitimate man? Vader. Ric Flair. And and we've not <laughs> discussed the Ric Flair Bret Hart feud in this, but that was quite a high profile match that sold out last month and, and it's generally really quite good. But the promos that lead to that match, Adam, you saw some of these. Any Ric Flair promos are amazing. So it's all but based he's... around Paul. Like, So Bret Hart comes in, and after his refereeing gig, he's all like, oh, I'm going to face all these great people from WCW. And he lists a load of names, but he doesn't say Ric Flair. So then later in the show, Flair comes out and says, oh, look, Bret, I noticed you didn't mention my name in that list of people. <laughs> what do you think you're playing at? It eventually becomes like a number of segments which involve Bret Hart being interviewed in the ring, Ric Flair coming to the ring, and basically saying, say that whole thing about being the best there is, the best there was, the best there ever will be, to my face. Yeah. So Brett does it, and then Flair just reacts amazingly every time. So well, that was a fantastic one, where he started talking about, you were 14, watching me win a title, and wishing that you were going to be me. And then you always know when Ric Flair's ramping up, because he starts taking his fucking clothes off. <laughs> so, <laughs> as soon as he takes off his tie and his jacket, it's going somewhere. What's the one where he takes his trousers off? That, that's later in the year. That's like the best that one. Is the best when he one. strips down to his underpants, he's just going absolutely ballistic. It's amazing. But if you can ever find these promos on the Nitros from early January, do take the time to watch them because, like, I know the criticism of Brett is that he's not a great talker, and certainly next to Ric Flair, he's obviously nowhere near that level. But they're great. Like Flair's reactions to Brett saying his best there is, best there was, best there ever will be, just every single time are great. He's like <laughs> completely incensed that Brett Hart would claim this thing at all, let alone to his face. It's it's gold. Sting eventually manages to get some punches in when Hogan takes too much time posing. Sting hits an atomic drop and takes Hogan's belt off to repay the whipping from earlier. Hogan bails up the aisle, but Sting follows and wraps the belt around Hogan's neck to drag him back to ringside. Sting sends Hogan into the guardrail and into the crowd for a few seconds before setting Hogan up on the guardrail again. 
Sting goes for a stinger splash, but Hogan moves out and Sting wipes out onto... The guardrail. Hogan meekly hits Sting in the back with a chair, which Charles Robinson just seems fine with. Yeah. Hogan takes the opportunity to put his belt back on and they head back inside. <laughs> Almost gets a bit of narts as Sting tries to interrupt him putting his belt back on. The way that belt's quite important to him. He doesn't want to lose it. Hogan bites Sting's face or licks his face paint off or something, so Sting fires back with a Stinger splash. Sting applies the Scorpion Deathlock, but Hogan is next to the ropes, so Sting is forced to break. Hogan complains to the referee that his wrist hurts, so for some reason, Sting hits another Stinger splash, which takes the official out to a big reaction. Hogan hits Sting with a clothesline, and guess who runs out? Number one babyface Nick Patrick. As Hogan hits the leg drop. Patrick takes the time to kick Charles Robinson out of the ring. <laughs> In a really sneaky way, that, that was very good. And when he counts Hogan's cover, it only gets to two. Hogan does his best attempt at looking quizzical as to why Patrick didn't counter fast three. Hogan hits rapid punches to Sting's head, so new super babyface Nick Patrick pulls Hogan away by his hair. The announcers seem to think that this now means Patrick is doing a bang-up job. Yes. We'll forget about everything else he did. Definitely won't turn heel again. Hogan hits Sting with a back suplex and covers for another two. And then another. And another. And then mounts him for a fourth, which was kind of creepy. And then a fifth, <laughs> which Sting bridges out of and gets back to his feet mm. from. Hogan manages to push Sting back to his knees and stomps on Sting's fingers. Hogan chokes Sting again before getting a sloppy roll-up for a two. Hogan complains to Nick Patrick that his counting isn't fast enough. Hogan throws Sting to the outside. And was anyone else wondering at this point if Charles Robinson is dead? He didn't have that bad a bump, but yet he just apparently is out of camera shot lying on the floor. Back inside and Hogan hits a low blow, presumably in full view of Nick Patrick, who doesn't disqualify him. Hogan goes back to kicking Sting's ass for a while until Sting stops selling it and beats his chest to a big pop. Sting hits a pair of huge Stinger splashes and looks for the Scorpion death drop, but Hogan kicks Nick Patrick in the balls and he goes down. The NWO B team run in, but Sting dispatches them like the jabronis they are. As this is going on, Randy Savage enters the ring and clocks Hogan with something. Sting turns around and covers the prone Hogan for the three at 16.32 to capture the WCW world title once again. The announcers reveal that Savage clocked Hogan with a can of spray paint, which Sting uses to write WCW on Hogan's chest before Nick Patrick presents him with the belt. So I think that it was probably a bit better than what I was expecting. I think it improved upon the last time that we saw, because even though the ending for this was kind of convoluted and crowded... It didn't feel like some sort of like horrendous fuck up like the last one did. Well, yeah, it's definitely got that going for it. Yeah, the action isn't isn't going to be anything like amazing, is it? But there's a there's a decent amount of crowd interaction with this. People want to see it, and you know it 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 does kind of deliver. It's not really for me, but I'll say there are positives to it. Yeah, not for me either. Um, <laughs> it's. Okay, yeah, it's probably, it's probably as bad as the other one. It's just like the, the quality of the actual in-ring work is so... not It's not poor, it's not horrendous, but it's just... It should be better than that for, for kind of your main event. This is like the rematch of the feud that you've been building for 18 years or however long it was. <laughs> and it should just, like, it just should be better than that. 
But I mean, Hogan's still just doing the same stuff that he's always done. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's that's kind of his thing. He's never I, I, want to do lots of big moves. I have to be honest. I'm not entirely convinced by Sting. I remember when we watched Sting in the Steiners episode. Yeah. So it was in the tag match. It was him and Luger against the Steiners. Yeah. At the first Super Brawl, I think. Mm. And that was really like he was really quite good, quite energetic. I was like, yeah, this this guy's quite interesting because I'd only really seen TNA Sting at that point. And it's like. Yeah, that's that's pretty good, and you know th- this performance and kind of perhaps some more of the recent ones that I've seen haven't lived up to that. I guess maybe he's had to change his move set and things. He was he was kind of the the fun surfery type, yeah. Guy, so like high energy, glitter gun, bleached hair, face paint, that sort of stuff. And now he's turned into the crow, yeah, dark, brooding, kind of superhero yeah. type. So I guess he's had to move all of his moves set around. But you're right, he doesn't he doesn't have that same energy that he did, mm. and whether that's but I think that is just his change of character. I, mean, I don't I don't mind Dark and Rune, like don't get me wrong, like Stinger Splash is really good. The Scorpion Deathlock's pretty pretty neat. But he's not got like the range of moves and and the kind of thing where he kind of no sells a bit and then he kind of like screams in the face. I don't quite buy it as as being like really kind of monstrous, I'd be terrified. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say something quite controversial. I don't really like the Stinger Splash. I, I've got to say, I thought that looked really good in oh, this match. I, I, I think I'll probably get some heat over that. I just think that occasionally, because he jumps and he grabs the top rope to stop himself going full on into people, and occasionally there's one that he did in Hogan, which looked basically just like he was just doing this very, very soft chest bump <laughs> to him in the corner. It didn't look like a, an offensive move. I see. I think I think they do the camera angle quite well for that, and I think he gets good height mm. on it as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the best thing you can probably say about it is it, that it is better than the first one, but that isn't exactly saying a lot. One thing I really hate about both of the matches, and I'm not sure why they do it both times, is this whole opening pattern of Sting just getting his ass kicked. Mm. Yeah, you build him up to something, and then immediately he just gets beaten down. And I get that that might just be like a Hogan demand based upon the fact he technically lost both of the matches, but like. It really doesn't necessarily paint him as this really exciting character. Like, I know he's not going to come in and wrestle like Surfer Sting, but surely he should have some sort of, like, real, like, flurry of opening kind of ass-kicking of Hogan rather than, the you know, sliding into the ring and the heel beats him down for five minutes. Or, or, or kind of just a bit of back and forth. Yeah. Just well, something. I mean, most of what we've seen, when you have your, your, your big, babyface character they will have that and Shawn Michaels babyface run was an excellent example of how to do this he comes in there's a real fast level of offense from from the babyface and then once that offense is in then they can get beaten down for ages by the heel before but they, they make but, the comeback but they make the strong start because they're a strong character there also didn't seem to be any fanfare about Sting winning the title last time in the dodgiest of circumstances. Everyone we got the entire out. WCW locker room in the ring, like celebrating, crowning Sting. This is our moment going forward. And here we are two months later, and presumably this is supposed to set Sting up as, okay, mate, you're the champion now. And there's nothing bar him spray painting Hogan, which I'm okay with as a concept. Like, obviously the NWO did it to absolutely everybody for ages, but... Yeah, there just doesn't seem to be any real kind of... It doesn't seem to feel like a crowning moment. He also did the first W a bit too big and had to squeeze the CW back in. Everybody always does that. Yeah, yeah. No, no one plans that spacing out well enough. Is it just a case of they basically blew their load with the first 
one round and now they can't redo that again. Yeah, that might be it. It might have been that maybe with the dodgy one, they should have not hyped it as much so that this time around it could feel more like a yes okay this is undisputed now but again it's not even bloody undisputed because you've got another dodgy finish with the nwo and randy savage yeah Mm. thoughts on the show overall then overall i'd probably give it a thumbs up i think there's more positives in this than negatives there's an also strong opening to the show like the first hour or so was really good yeah you had the the non-starter in in luger and savage the main event doesn't deliver perhaps on on the on the scale of main events that we've seen in the WWF pay-per-views but it's not as diabolical as some that we have seen and it it does have a, a reasonable amount of storytelling going on in it i had some real standout moments the the Jericho moving to match and Benoit DDP were were excellent i think the opener was was solid enough and you know i love Disco Inferno La Parker so there's there's enough going on in that to make it a, a more positive show, I think. I think I'm less inclined to like this show. But I think there's three good things on the show. So Goldberg against Brad Armstrong I thought was pretty standout. It was short but really good. Jericho against Hooventude was pretty good with, with lots of good stuff in there. And the Benoit DDP match. But the other things for me were, were a bit of a disappointment. So I thought the... The opener, I didn't enjoy that as much as you guys seemed to. I really didn't like the, the Lex Luger against Savage particularly. I didn't really enjoy the main event. And the less said about the Bulldog match, the better. I actually think this is a pretty decent show overall. When you've got 10 matches on the card and at least five of them are decent, I'd say that's a pretty good hit rate. The opening half an hour that's basically the Booker T show is enjoyable. Disco Inferno La Parker is fine undercard fodder. Goldberg murders Brad Armstrong. Hooventood. And Jericho is excellent, and Benoit DDP is brilliant. Yes, the top-line matches between Luger, Savage, and Hogan Sting aren't great, but you can't deny that the latter isn't heated. The crowd care about the result. I know, Paul, you'd probably like more promos and video packages, but to be fair to WCW, Nitro and Thunder are filled with them, so the pay-per-views at least feel different from the weekly TV show in that sense. The Steiner turn angle is also fun and actually does its best to make Rick feel important, despite the fact that the focus going forward will clearly be on Scott. In ring, the best stuff on this show is light years ahead of what we saw from the WWF in their February 1998 effort, No Way Out. Yes, there was some okay stuff on that card, but nothing in ring was anywhere near as good as Benoit DDP or Hooventude Jericho. Mm. Match of the night in MVP, then? I only give match to... Jericho and Hooventu because I just thought that that had great in-ring work and I particularly love the way that Jericho's character is progressing and so for me I just found that most enjoyable in some ways maybe I found the the Armstrong-Goldberg match most enjoyable but it was a very short squash match so I'll give the the match to actually the Jericho-Hooventu uh, for MVP, though, I will give to Goldberg because, well, he looked like an absolute monster. He did that amazing military press into catching slam yeah. move and he did a, a pump handle suplex, which I've never seen before. Just looked absolutely fearsome. Yeah, definitely Goldberg and the Goldberg match for me. The Goldberg match was the only thing I was genuinely excited about. So although there was other decent stuff on there that, that I didn't, not didn't even mind, but but quite enjoyed. But I was genuinely excited about seeing that Goldberg match. I actually got a bit of a buzz off that. 
Match of the night. It's close between DDP Benoit and Hooven to Jericho. Initially, I thought I'd go with the latter, but when I did the watch where I sit down and write my notes, I changed my mind to DDP Benoit. It's such a well-worked match, and I absolutely recommend that if you're okay with watching Benoit matches, like you should go back and check it out. MVP, two names spring up here, and they're both pretty fresh at the time, as in they're not former WWF wrestlers. Chris Jericho's heel turn has been excellent. He's gone from a bland baby face to an absolutely brilliant comedy heel that the fans want to see get punched in the face. The other name is Goldberg. He was in the ring for less than three minutes, but the crowd came alive for what he did because what he did was fucking brilliant. Mm. Booker T also deserves a mention, as does Leparka for his dancing. And the guardrail. And the guardrail. But I'll go with Goldberg. Mullet of the night. Clean sweep for Goldberg off the back of a less than three minute match. Yeah. But I think a, I think that he's, really. Sh- he's not got a mullet. I thought you were giving him mullet of the <laughs> night then. But no, no. It's from all, we all gave him MVP, didn't we? Which mm. I think just shows how intense and how amazing he, he really is at this point. Uh, mullet of the night goes to my new favourite referee, Nick Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> Straight in the middle. I, well, when when I saw like who was going to be on this this card, I thought, well, Brad Armstrong's on it, <laughs> contender cut his fucking hair off so and Lex Luger had tied it in a ponytail ex- exactly it's like they're, they're conspiring against me but Nick Patrick is, uh, is is doing the business and on that bombshell it's time to wrap up today's episode but before we can go if you've enjoyed what you've listened to today here are the top five ways you can support the show oh number five give us a like on Facebook at facebook.com slash new generation project podcast a follow on Twitter at new gen podcast or on Instagram at new gen podcast and interact with us number four leave us a five star review and some kind words on iTunes three take a look at our back catalogue that's going up one by one on botchamania.com including video episodes check out some of the absolutely free bonus content that we post regularly over at soundcloud.com slash newgenpodcast featuring matches from the WWE, NXT, Chikara, Michinoku Pro and All Japan Pro Wrestling. There's more going up all the time, including our review of one of the highlights of the new WWE unreleased DVD set, the sole WWF match of Timmy and Tommy, the Toxic Turtles. Numero one. And if you don't mind giving a little something back, you can pledge to us over at patreon.com slash newgenpodcast. Adam and I have just started discussing what we're planning for our Christmas bundles. So, mm-hmm. yes, all, all shall be revealed in the coming weeks. Episode 92 will see us take one final flashback back to 1993 to compare and contrast where the promotion was when we began our journey with where it is as we wrap up our story arc. In looking at the only WrestleMania ever on my birthday, it's WrestleMania 9. I'm looking forward to it. Do you like togas? It's very cheap doing a pub car park. Yeah. Yeah, can't wait. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and on that note, my name's Stuart Brooks. I'll say goodbye. I'm Adam White. Goodbye. I'm at Yes Paul Scoons. Bye. Still
Thing. I'm learning to fly. 